Need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Knockback is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to CollinsLastStand.com. Greetings and salutations. Welcome to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined as always by my brother, Dagan. Stay black, Moriarty. Dagan, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Otherwise known as Sweet Dick Willie of Greater yeah, Philly. Sweet t- Wait. Uh, Dagan's, that's t- Dagan's that sweet dick Moriarty. <laughs> oh God! Sorry, mom. <laughs> <laughs> wow, this is she's good. so far behind on the show. I think I don't think she's ever going to even hear what? this one. But I don't want to hear that. That's that's unacceptable. Completely unacceptable. It is. It is. How's everything going in your world? Everything's good, Carl. Everything's good. A little crazy. We got up super early this morning. I was just thinking about that. We got up at like just before seven because we had a piano delivered to the house today oh early so so the the make a long story short my mother-in-law one of my mother-in-law's good friends is like moving to a 55 and over community so she's in the in the throes of getting rid of a lot of things so she said to my mother-in-law to helen would you you know do the kids want this piano it's like I don't know what the, the technical name of it. It's like a piano you would see in a school, a nice piano, but not like a concert piano, not like a grand piano, right? but that type of thing. So we don't really have one. We have like a glorified keyboard for the kids who both like to do music. So we said, yeah, sure. So the piano movers came and I learned something today. There is a thing. I didn't know this completely ignorant to this fact. There is such a thing as not movers, proper movers, but Actual piano movers. That's what they specialize in. It's on the side of the truck. It's on their shirts. So it's on their little fanny pack weight, you know, uh, those little weight belt things. So this is like a real thing. And my mother-in-law was saying it's like a chain. Like they're all over the, you know, I guess, southeastern Pennsylvania area. So my father-in-law was saying he saw these guys, this particular company, like hoisting a piano into one of the schools downtown in Philly. I think it was University of the Arts they were hoisting a piano up to like the 12th story via a crane. So this is like an actual, did you know this was an actual business? Just the business of moving pianos? I had no clue. No, I mean. No clue. I had no clue either. C- capitalism's a glorious thing. <laughs> only in America. <laughs> only, uh, it's funny because the only uh, insight I have into pianos being moved or falling or being, is like Looney Tunes <laughs> when they're, when pianos are like falling off of buildings on top of ostensibly innocent animals good pull. So, good yeah of course yeah that's the only way to make it completely hilarious so by the way did you see that elmer fudd and i guess yosemite sam are being made with no guns no in the new no in the new the looney tune series yeah uh it doesn't surprise me but i did not hear about that oh it's kind of insane i i don't know what i don't know wow. it doesn't matter i'm surprised they had the restraint to not give them like super soakers or something really awful you know, like empty holsters or no holsters, no cowboy hat. The cowboy hat is not politically correct. Like, you know how they you know how they go now. It's no sense of humor. Yeah, anymore. it's too bad. <laughs> it's too bad. Nope. 
it's it is too bad it really is but well we'll get into all of the i guess things that are going on in the real world during this episode because it's a timely episode we're actually throwing this one into the mix into the hopper out of nowhere we decided to do this one last week because we were going to do mass effect this week well mass effect will be up next week instead because we wanted to do an episode on the 1989 spike lee film do the right thing just because it seems like it was made today and it really is unbelievable in that regard and it just seems like it's a timely movie to discuss the racial animosity and all the other things that are going on in the world so i'm sure we'll have plenty to say about that and yeah otherwise nothing's really going on in my life either i mean i'm getting ready to move in a few days i gotta call the utility companies or you know go online and deal with them tonight and all the rest so that's a little bit of a scene for me because i actually i my there was this company that i worked with for the what am i trying to say the inspection oh yeah i I can't think sure of course and then they were like we have a concierge service where we call the utility companies for you and all of that. And I'm like, all right. So we made an appointment and then they called me a few days ago and they're like, well, we have a concierge service. And I'm like, yeah, you made an appointment with me for Tuesday at 130 to talk to me and do this. And they're like, oh, OK, sorry. And we'll call you Tuesday, 130. And then they just never called. So <laughs> it's the worst concierge service ever. Yeah, I was like, all right, I didn't even ask you guys to do this. So it kind of sucks because I was just going to do everything myself. But I think. I'll get this done Wednesday night. I move in Monday morning. I think it'll be fine. The The Internet is all set up. So that's or will be set up on Monday. I've already like made that sure that was going. So I'm happy with that. But yeah, otherwise, a lot a lot of things to worry about in that regard, moving and buying shit and continuing to spend an enormous amount of money on furniture and whatever. But the usual rigmarole when one moves, I suppose. Absolutely. Kyle, let me ask you a question. I don't even know how much of a choice you have down there, but. Who did you end up going with for cable and internet? Is it Verizon? Just like just like everywhere else, basically. I have com. I got the, the choice was between Comcast and Verizon, but I went with Comcast. Okay, same as here. Same. I think you made the right choice. We've been we've been literally talking about switching to Comcast for the seven of the eight years that we've been here. <laughs> just haven't done it yet. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't know why. I, I mean, none of these companies really have a good reputation, so I wouldn't necessarily be too confident in my choice but i don't know i just went with the devil i knew i guess you could always switch you could always switch down the line they're always vying for your business those two companies here's the 300 hundred dollar gift card here's you know we promise to give you this you know this every every month i get something from comcast it's like and it seems they su- seem to sweeten the pot every time something arrives in the mailbox it's like a $250 gift card. Then it was a $300 gift card. Then if you wait a month, it's like a $300 gift card and an iPad. It's like crazy. You might as well just wait. You'd be so mad if you acted three months prior the way they do things. You know, so. You'll know, you be rich if you wait long enough. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. We'll be in business. <laughs> All right. Well, well, let's do this, my friend. All right, thanks. So I'm going to kick it over to you for our opening segment. I'm once again derelict. I have no poem prepared. I'm going to have to kick it over to you. I'm just, my mind's scattered. I just, uh, I'm out of time. So I can't sit down and, and write these things thoughtfully. So there's no reason to do it at all. But I promise that once I'm settled in, I'll get back to it because I do like this idea very much. Well, you know, it's hard. It's hard, man. I, you know, I've, I've been thinking about it a lot myself too. I said, 
because it's kind of like preparing a show and a half writing these things sometimes, at least because I take it to the upteeth degree. I really struggle with it and wrestle with it and everything. Want to make it entertaining for you guys, but it is tough. In fact, I'm thinking about just doing one more for our next episode, which is going to be a great episode that we're, we're going to record in the next two days, actually. And then well, what I'll do is maybe put this segment on hold until things get, a, you get kind of moved in and settled to your new home. And I get going with the new podcast because things are just busy, man. It's just, yeah, all of a sudden the summer is like kicking off. So I totally understand. But as long as we have something for the people. Now, guys, we're of course referring to our latest and greatest opening segment called Dagan versus Colin or Colin versus Dagan. A little rap, a little poem, a little rhyming, a little verse to open up and kick off our show. Usually based on the topic du jour today, of course, our show being centered on the classic movie, Do the Right Thing, the timeless, as it were, film, Do the Right Thing. So I have a little poem prepared for you guys, simply titled, Do the Right Thing. Now, I have to say, this poem, this rap, is really a send-up to Do the Right Thing in all ways. So if you guys are already familiar with the film, you'll probably get a little more out of it because line for line, this is pretty much a send up to the movie as those of you who know the movie will see. And you know, before we forget to say, go watch this movie before you listen to the show. This movie's worth watching. Go check it out. It's exactly two hours. If I'm not mistaken, best two hours you'll ever spend. If you, if you somehow missed this film, it's a classic. We're going to get into that. Here's a little poem for you guys. Again, titled in reverence, do the right thing. Here we go. Kyle, are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. All right, let's do it. Let's drop some science here on Knockback. I don't mean to be a bummer, but I'm going to take it back to 89 in the middle of the summer. Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brooklyn, a hot day at Sal's Pizza. Hope everybody's ready for what Spike Lee is about to teach you. Up your wake, up your wake. You've got some choices to make. So get your jersey, your Jordans, your boombox, and your favorite tape. Here's 20 Doracells. So grab your volume knob and boost it. Get in this New York state of mind or just go back to Massachusetts. Some dork stepped on your kicks. Your friend's laughing that he dissed you, but the situation's serious. So you scowl like mother sister. These rhymes almost knocked you over. So the word is excuse me. Fight the powers that be with Flavor Flav and Chuck D. Talking shit at the corner spot like sweet dick Willie. Start disrespecting your elders, though, and proceed to get slapped silly. Korean grocer down the street, the American dream. If I love you, then I love you. Words by Radio Rahim. A neighborhood OG, portrayed by Danny Aiello. Threaten with a boycott and get played like a busted cello. Watch your back on the block. The cops are taking mad collars. If you want more mozzarella, extra cheese will cost you $2. Made in the shade, positive like Jade. You couldn't beat this heat with a warehouse full of Gatorade. Let's have a conversation. There's no need to act the fool and shout. Go cool off in that hydrant. You really are just bugging out. The afternoon grows hotter and more trouble could be looming. Black, white, or purple. The last I checked, we're all human. Let's add some pictures to that famous wall. No need to get annoyed. Don't be another brick. Let's leave that other wall for Pink Floyd. Woo! Now, Kyle, I have to say, I feel Very like nice. I just realized I feel Excellent. like the rhythm of this piece might have required an additional quick verse to end it. Plus, 
Pink Floyd is a little bit weird. It's a little bit of a non sequitur, but there it is. I digress. I thought it was excellent. Thank you, my friend. Very, very well done. Thank you. I very, enjoy, very well done. I enjoy, I enjoy doing it, but whew, yeah, it's, it could be time consuming, man. It really can be. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. See what we do for you guys? Let's, uh, let's get into it. Let's roll, my friend. Let's do this. All right, Dave. So as I said earlier, Do the Right Thing came out June 30th, 1989 into the theaters. It was shot over 40 days in 1988. It's exactly like you said, two hours long, 120 minutes. Created on a budget of $6 million, it made over $37 million at the domestic box office. Was nominated for a couple of Academy Awards, including Best Supporting Actor and Best Screenplay. And this is a movie when everything was going on and everything is going on at the time that we're recording this. We're recording this in early June 2020. A lot of racial tension right now in the United States. A lot of tension over police brutality and all of the rest, things that we were hoping we left behind, but really didn't. And this movie encapsulates pretty much all of that, even though it was made in the late and released in the late 80s. It feels so prescient and interesting through today's lens as well. And so I figured that we would really need to do a movie or a, a knockback episode like this just to speak to this time through something that we really enjoy, which is this film. I hadn't seen this film in a really long time and really didn't remember very much of it. Obviously, everyone remembers the iconic ending, which we'll talk about. But I don't know that I was really old enough or smart enough to understand all the nuance of the film. And so watching it last night, I just laid in bed and watched it on Amazon. It is a really it's an excellent film and it's really deep. There's a lot of subtext to the film. I think you can read between the lines. I think you can do a lot of case study on this film. And so I'm, I'm curious. I know that the, you really love this film. You've, you've often mentioned this film, both on this show and just in passing. And I'm wondering what your introduction to this movie was and when you first saw it and why it's so important to you. Yeah. You know, I don't even know if you realize this. I mean, this is easily Kyle might in my top 20 films of all time. I mean, that's how much I love this film. I've maybe seen it about a dozen times now. I can remember my very earliest memory of going to see it in the movie theater on Long Island, of course, at Brookhaven Multiplex, which you'll, of course, you'll remember, Kyle. We refer to that seminal movie theater in our lives a lot because that was really the first multiplex that we ever that we ever went to, that we ever had as kids in our portion of New York. And I saw it with my two best friends, John, who I just talked about on our best friends episode. My best friend since I was four years old. I went to see it with him, and my friend Pat. So one white friend and one black friend, my two best friends at the time, Pat and I became really good friends in around seventh grade. In 1989, we were probably, we were 16, I believe. So, and I remember that moment in our lives, we saw a different movie every weekend. I don't know what the drive was to go see this movie, but we, it seems like at that age, we just saw everything. Like I have so many vivid memories of seeing so many films between maybe 14 and 17 years old, because, you know, at that age as kids, right before you get your driver's license, that's what we did. You know, we went to the movies, we, we got dropped off, we carpooled, worked it out with our various, the various parents and transportation. So we had our chauffeurs and we went to see movies. So this was a big one. I, I vividly remember seeing this in the movie theater and, and pretty much falling in love with it at that point. And it's such an interesting film. I mean, first of all, yeah, let's talk about Spike Lee. As you said, it this film especially, it's a it's amazing how timely it is, especially for what's I think it's been timely since it came out almost you know over thirty years ago. But 
I think that this right now with what's going on, I'm so glad you wanted to do this episode. It's so fitting, of course, with what's going on in the world. So I think it'll be a great conversation. And it's also timely because as I found out, I think last week, I didn't even realize that Spike Lee's got a brand new movie coming out on Friday on June 12th, direct to Netflix, a new film called The Five Bloods, which looks really interesting. Of course, it's not related to this film, but I thought it was timely in a, in a Spike Lee context. And of course, Spike, I mean, one of, for me at least, one of the most important voices in modern film since, I mean, ever since I was young to this day, not, and never mind just being an important African-American voice. I think he's one of the essential filmmakers of our age. And it's, and, and this film, I would argue, and many would agree that this film, though it's very early in his filmography, is really his masterpiece. And he, you know, this is technically his fourth movie. I believe his third, if you count his, if you don't count his student film, you know, he was an NYU film graduate, New York staple. And here's the interesting thing about this film for me, Kyle, that I really, as it occurs to me as I was taking notes. Well, first of all, I have to say I'm I'm a diligent note taker when it comes to knockback like you are. I have pages and pages of notes. I really want to flesh out what I want to talk about. I want to make it really as articulate as possible for the audience and bring our own insights. It's really important to me. But I really tried to dial that back with this episode and come from the heart. Because this movie is so important, I think its message And it's so important to me, I thought just kind of shooting from the hip, coming from the heart with it, dialing down the note taking and just keeping it a little more raw and see how that, you know, to see how that goes. I know the movie pretty intimately, so I was pretty comfortable doing that. And I hope it adds some, I hope it adds that resonance to the episode. It's a bit of an experiment for me. And here's the thing about this film, Kyle. It balances the pleasant and the unpleasant so deftly you know it's it's pleasant and it's provocative and how many films could stake such a unique claim it's it's an odd dichotomy with this movie because the film is on one hand this interesting and even oftentimes beautiful slice of life look at a new york neighborhood in the late 80s it's beautifully shot and wonderfully acted with these really rich visuals and and colors and imagery and texture it's just so thoughtfully crafted. And on the other hand, it's this brutally truthful film that just kind of lays bare many important issues, especially referring, of course, to race and racial perceptions. And it's, you know, it's honest and it's uncomfortable. And it's a, it's a, it's an honest and uncomfortable look at racial tension in America in the place that we live. And of course it speaks to many places in the world too. We have listeners from everywhere but especially in America, especially of this era, even with specific people all living in immediate proximity to each other, you know, such as Brooklyn, a borough in, the, in New York City. You know, these are people that are all familiar with each other. They kind of live shoulder to shoulder. And yet there's this, still all these sort of negative feelings and fear and misconception and ignorance and even violence sort of bubbling beneath the surface and how striking that is. And the film is... You know, it's it's funny for me because it's really I almost feel guilty about it sometimes, but it's enjoyable to watch. It's fun. There's levity. We meet these a wide variety of memorable characters, many of whom are actually appealing. You know, the characters are well developed. We see these neighborhood figures sort of intertwine with each other. We have the smooth jazz soundtrack. 
where sort of in the neighborhood with these people as they interact and relate and converse and go about their day and try to keep cool on this scorching summer afternoon. And, you know, as the day wears on, of course, the tension really mounts. We won't get there yet. But here's the thing. The film has this gradual but unmistakable arc from, as I said, painting this vivid picture of this neighborhood with wide swatches of color. You know, it's very colorful. It's, it's warts and all. But because it's a, it's a working class neighborhood. It's a, you know, it's a neighborhood in Brooklyn. It's not an upper middle class area. But it's magnetic and it's rich. It's, it's just magnetic. You just want to be there. It's super hot. It's brutally hot outside. But you just want to be there in that place with those people. Somehow you're just enjoying being in that place. I would say through maybe the, the center, the middle of the movie. And then we follow this trajectory slowly as we descend into really unpleasant and uncomfortable stuff happening, altercations into conflict. And it, it dawned on me, Kyle, maybe for the first time of actually seeing it 10 or 11 or 12 times now, that I think it operates in these two ways very strategically because I think it's really designed, I think the movie is designed to really immerse you and make you feel like you're in this neighborhood with these people, give you all those, you know, the five senses and make you really feel immersed in this place. So when everything pops off, you're part of that too. When everything goes south and it becomes unpleasant and the hate sort of emerges, you're stuck in that place with those people and there's just no avoiding it. And I think that's really what this movie does. And that's what makes it, you know, I think a lot of people, it's a controversial movie. It's a, it's sort of a divisive and polarizing movie for a lot of people, Kyle, because I think Spike Lee, he sort of, he hits you with all the questions, but he's not knocking you over the head with the answers. You kind of got to, you got to walk away with that. It proposes, the film proposes all the questions, but it doesn't hand you the answers. It challenges you. This is one of those films that really challenges you, I think. And again, it's amazing. And actually horrifying how timely the film still is. Everything it talks about. Racism, yes, but also it covers, you know, it talks about ageism, gentrification, materialism, absentee fathers, absentee parents. So this movie goes into a lot. There's a lot. There's really a lot to talk about. It's a really vivid portrayal of, I think, really, I think you'd be able, you would probably say, you would you would be able to say in the past that this is a really accurate portrayal of a slice of life in the late 80s in New York but i think it holds up i think it's just really a vivid portrayal of society still to this day now it has a little bit it fits in for knockback i think because it has a little bit of that nostalgic resonance now too being 30 years old so you could look back definitely you know you could look at the jordans and the style of boombox and the specific models of cars in the street and all that kind of thing. So it has that sort of retro vibe to it now too, which I think actually only adds to its appeal for me, for, for a nostalgic fool like myself anyway. But that's where, you know, that's where I would start with this movie. I have so much to say about it. It's, it's going to be so fun to talk about the characters, the moments. And yeah, I can't wait to talk about it with you, man. Because I don't think, I know you knew that I liked, I really loved this film, that I adored this film. But I don't know that you and I ever talked about it at length. So this will be a fun talk. Yeah, I was never in any until now in any position to talk about it in any authority because I saw it when I was a teenager and 
again, everyone, I think everyone that's seen the movie really remembers the ending, the garbage can being thrown through the window and stuff and how replicated in media that is that it's very iconic imagery. But I didn't really remember anything else about it. So I was really watching it very intently because I was like, I can't believe I can't believe this film, like how incredible this film is. And I just didn't realize it at the time. But again, like we said, just how timely it is to the unfortunately to the events that we're dealing with now in the United States. And it's funny because this movie dig into me. I was reading about it. It's considered a comedy in some way, like a drama comedy, which I can see. But this movie, unlike almost any other movie I've seen personally, has a level of foreboding and tension in it that is almost unrivaled. And there's all of these escape valves that show up in the movie where you're like, is this is this where it's going to go off? Is this where it's going to go off? Is this where? And it never happens to the point where when you get towards the end of the movie, you're like, is it ever going to happen? Am I misremembering <laughs> the completely insane shit that happens at the end of this movie? Like I was I was starting to question my own remembrances, vague remembrances of the film. And I'm like, maybe this movie doesn't pop off at all because there's the scene when they're. For just as an example, there's the scene when they're playing with the fire hydrant and the Italian guy drives by in his Cadillac or whatever. And they 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 fuck it up with the water. Yes. The the black kids right. in the neighborhood. And you're like, all right, is this guy going to come back and like fuck people up? That doesn't happen. Then there's the guy in the Celtics jersey who's riding his bike and, and hits one of the guy's shoes and he bought a brownstone in the neighborhood. And you're like, is this guy going to get the shit beat out of him? Is this when it's going to happen? And it doesn't happen. And then there's like all of the drama around the Korean bodega and you're like are these guys gonna get fucked up is it gonna happen here and it doesn't happen and you keep getting these instances over and over again and i really love the guy in the celtics jersey because it's it's not only an, an, a, a thing of gentrification and kind of white obliviousness and all of that kind of stuff but also just making fun of people born in new york that like boston sports teams which never made any sense <laughs> uh, to me at all i love that that's so strange so I, I there is a multi-layered and almost comedic part of that as well but the, the movie just builds its tension and it just won't release it. It won't release the tension. The brothers in the pizza parlor are fighting with each other. That's Pino and Vito. You're like, is, are they going to come to blows? But they never really do. You're expecting Sal to go on some sort of racist tirade, but he doesn't until the very end. And he seems to be in control of his oldest son, Pino, played by John Turturro. So there are just all of these valves that you're like, are they going to release the tension? And then they really release the tension and it's unexpected. It really comes out of nowhere. And it's powerful because and we'll talk about the ending because the ending is obviously essential, including the quotes at the end. I've re I read around about this and I didn't see anything about it, but like I don't know that Spike Lee ever spoke about what specifically the intent was behind the ending. And I feel like with the conflicting quotes from King and X, at the end, Malcolm X, not Mega Man X, that <laughs> that we have a situation where, to me, the movie is all about the complicated nature of race relations, the complicated nature of police brutality and policing and gentrification and poverty and alcoholism and all of that. To me, that's the that's the way I read this movie, that it's it's a moment in time. It's a day in 1989, the, the Sunday. It's a hot summer day. It's just about that day and nothing more and nothing less. 
And that's kind of the way I see it. It doesn't mean that it's not about all these other issues. It is. It's just about all those issues through the lens of that one day. There is no there is no satisfaction at the end of the film. Nothing is learned or gained. The situation is just worse, actually. And um, now I, I should note that I did read this. I never saw this movie. So there's a movie called Red Hook Summer. Have you seen this movie? No, I haven't That's seen a it. Spike Lee movie. No, I have not. So apparently that. this is part of Spike Lee's so-called Chronicles of Brooklyn anthology, which includes movies like Crooklyn and whatever, whatever else. Right. Apparently Spike Lee's character comes back. Mookie comes back in that movie oh. delivering pizzas. What? And the insinuation is that he works for Sal again. So there's like a weird Whoa. connection where I guess it, that tension is released further on along the way where it seems like they're maybe good with each other. OK, again. So we'll get into all of that. But for people that for some reason are listening to this that haven't seen the film, you should we always recommend you see the film for the, the shows we're doing or play the game or watch the TV show or whatever. It's basically like Dagan said, takes place in in Bedford Stuy in Brooklyn which to this day is a pretty racially diverse neighborhood. It's still 50% black, but in the 80s, it was much more black uh, than that. Now there's a gentrification issue almost everywhere in Brooklyn. Or not an issue. I mean, gentrification is not necessarily a bad thing, but it was much more black in the 80s. And it's about a pizza delivery guy played by Spike Lee, who also produced, wrote, and directed the film, named Mookie. And Mookie works for an Italian family at Sal's famous pizzeria, which is down the street from him. And Sal's has been an institution in this neighborhood for 25 plus years. And it's a conspicuous place because it's run by white guys, a white family in a very black neighborhood. Only black patrons go there. And it's about the tensions that kind of build up around the situation, even though it seems like in some ways the least tense place. It almost it almost seems like a place that that time didn't forget where it, it was very racially mixed. No one was really disrespecting anyone. There was some drama between some of the patrons and whatnot, but ultimately it seemed like the business was thriving. The people enjoyed the pizza and the food. They get deliveries. They, they get calls to make the food. So everything's going really well there ostensibly. And then it's about all the characters in the neighborhood. You have not only Sal, Pino, and Vito, the Italian family, but you also have a guy named the mayor, played by uh, Ozzy Davis, a great character. His wife, Ruby D, plays mother-sister, which nice. is another interesting older character. You have the famous radio, Raheem, played by Bill Nunn, who died a few years ago. This is Rosie Perez's first movie. She plays Tina, a Puerto Rican uh, mother who Mookie impregnates and is kind of like an absentee father with. Samuel L. Jackson is in the movie, one of his first film roles. Uh, Giancarlo Esposito's in it, who people would know from Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul more recently and others. So there are a lot of different characters in the film. And I'm just kind of curious. What do you agree with me that this movie is not it, it doesn't have a defined meaning that even though it's about all these different things that it's it's not resolved at yeah. all? Absolutely, Kyle. I think it's pur- purposely obtuse at the end. That seems very apropos to Spike Lee's approach anyway. But the only thing I ever heard him speak about is that apparently there was some semi-popular theory or fan theory being bandied about 
that Mookie, I don't know if you heard about this, that Mookie threw the garbage can through the window in order to divert the crowd, the rioting crowd's attention from Sal and the brothers in order to essentially save those, those guys, in order to save Sal, Pino, and Vito. And I heard Spike Lee on several occasions in different interviews sort of debunk that and say that's absolutely wrong. That's not why Mookie threw the garbage can. I never heard him say why Mookie threw the garbage can, but I did hear him debunk, at least debunk that theory. I mean, I have my own theories, and maybe we could talk about of why Mookie did that and whether or not he did the right thing. I certainly have my own theories about it, but I do think that just like the rest of the movie, first of all, I love what you said about sort of being, you know, the tension that this movie creates because it's absolutely true. You know, every sort of, you have all these confrontations, especially in the earlier half or, you know, at least the earlier portion of the movie, you have these confrontations that don't end up, or these beefs that don't end up erupting into violence somehow. And the movie sort of allows you to hope that those sort of arguments and that sort of bad blood doesn't reach a tipping point, that it won't ultimately descend into violence. So that movie actually strings you along on that hope. So when things go south and everything erupts into hideousness at the end of the film, it's really it's really emotional. It's a very heartbreaking thing to to watch. I got really emotional watching it. Helene and I watched it late over the weekend, and it was the first time she's seen the film in a long time, and maybe only the second time she's ever seen it. And yeah, I was really, I was teary-eyed because it's so, again, it's, it's amazing that we're still dealing with this. I feel like we were long in the tooth on this, on this issue when I was 16 in 1989. You know, this, again, you have to remember what this film is based on, you know, some of the things that inspired Spike Lee in real life to make the movie. Like we will, I don't know how, how much we're going to get into it, the five W's on these stories, but you know, the death and, and a lot of people would say murder of Michael Stewart in 1983, who was the graffiti artist in New York. And then of course the Howard beach racial incidents of 1986, which I remember very well happening and popping off and the death of Michael Griffith when he was struck by the car being chased by the kids. in I believe that was in, yeah, that was in Howard beach and he was struck on the belt parkway and killed. So there was a lot of things that were fueling this for Spike Lee that he was kind of sitting on. And I know this, this, the seed was planted and the germ was planted for this movie early on, even in film school, that he wanted to do it. And he, he couldn't do it without getting at least that proper budget, which was a shoestring budget even for back then, but he was able to pull it off. But for me, that's what the, the whole movie is. It's just proposing all these questions. It's really making you be introspective and go inside yourself and search for those answers it makes you, again, it makes you challenge yourself. You really have to search inwardly and think about how you feel about it, how it works for you. And I've seen people get defensive watching this movie. I've seen, you know, I've seen black people get defensive. I've seen white people get defensive in my various viewings of the film. It's amazing the emotional impact it has on people. But I think it really does allow the viewer to be introspective and ask the questions and maybe sort of form their own conclusions. I'm not sure that Spike was trying to give you the answers with this. Again, you know, as you said, it it ends with the closing uh, sort of quote, those seminal quotes from both Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, one sort of denouncing violence and one 
saying, you know, one not glori- the other one not glorifying violence, but justifying violence if necessary. So, you know, you have all of those things. You have these broad brushes that the movie's painted with, and you have to kind of figure out how it works for you. And I think that's what makes the conversation so interesting with this film, Colin, that we're still talking about it. And it's so polarizing, and I get that. What do you take away from the end of the film? What do you think Spike Lee was trying to do? How, you know, and how does it work for you? Well, we have a couple of inquiries about this, too. So I want to include these and then I'll I'll talk about that with you. Brian Lau wrote into us on Patreon, just like you can remember, support us on Patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand for early ad free access to the show. The ability to submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts and ideas and more vote on topics, submit topic ideas. Says, hey, Colin and Dagan, great movie to talk about, given the climate we are in today. The iconic scene in this entire movie is when Mookie calmly walks over to the trash can, removes the lid and walks it over to the pizzeria to smash the window. Most viewers, including myself, interpret this as a way to save Sal from being killed by the neighborhood by letting them take their frustration out on the restaurant instead. Like Dagan said, it seems like Spike Lee denies this. The shot that bothered me the most was when the cash register was broken into and all the money was taken. Do you feel that particular shot was necessary? If you are able to write that scene, would you come to the same outcome or would you find a different way to end the movie? And then Zachary Douglas wrote, write, writes in and says, hello, gents. This was always one of those movies that I was supposed to watch in school, but never got around to seeing. Now that I have, I think the moral of the story is really the most important part of the entire film. To me, that is summed up in the two quotes at the very end, specifically the MLK quote. Do you two interpret the film as saying essentially do the right thing because even a mistake from a good person can lead down a road of destruction? What morals and lessons can we learn from this now 30 year old story? Keep up the great work, gents. Thank you guys for submitting your questions. Thank you. So the ending is interesting because, like I said, you almost feel like you're, you got out of the movie without anything happening. And it's almost like what you, at least from my perspective, it's like almost what I wanted to happen. I almost wanted to feel like, oh, I misremembered this iconic scene. It's not in the movie. We're getting so close to the end. Nothing has happened. And you almost don't want that valve to be released. You just want to get the hell out and have like a peaceful day amongst different races where nothing really pops off. And, you know, they, the the. The pizzeria has a good day financially and Mookie finally gets paid and he and he hangs out with his kind of estranged woman and has the laughs with his sister. And we meet all the different characters in the the streets and the mayor and mother sister kind of have a bonding moment and Radio Raheem gets his batteries and whatever the case might be. It's just an interesting thing. And so when we get to the end, it sucks because. You're at least I don't want to say you, but I'm rooting in a way for Sal to control his son. In terms of Pino Vito, the younger son is who's played by uh, Richard Edson is a much more even keeled person than John Totoro's character. But I look at it in the sense of he is trying to control his son. There's a generational gap that's reversed between these two people where there's a I mean, there's a shit ton of racism in, in the Italian community in New York. There always has been, and I think there still is. And it's interesting to see that inversed where the son is really the racist one through the the influence of his friends back home in their neighborhood. And Sal is kind of the voice of reason talking about how he's proud to have fed these kids and watched them grow up. And he's kind of got that weird relationship that's undefined with Jade, which I I think is in, is strange and all of that. But then suddenly it turns and you realize that deep within Sal's character, the racism still sits just bubbling under the surface where it comes from the frustration. I don't know. It's it's he has a wedding band on, which I think is interesting. So there's a mother involved in this somewhere or like a wife. 
we don't really meet or hear about. Right. The mother, presumably, of the two boys. And so you kind of look at them as like a solid family unit in a neighborhood where there doesn't seem to be many solid family units because you see the estranged relationship between Mookie and Tina. You see kids kind of running around wantonly and whatever. You do meet a, a mom who talks about the dad coming home and stuff. So it's not everyone in the neighborhood, but obviously broken homes and fatherless situations are common, too common in black society at this time. And a lot of people point to that as maybe part of the reason why there's endemic crime in those neighborhoods, whatever the case might be, whatever the case, however you interpret it. I just think it's interesting that everything turns on its head at the end. And Sal is the one who kind of pops off when he seems to very much be the voice of reason for the entire film. So it's kind of like frustrating because you're really proud of this guy for controlling his son, for trying to be a more positive influence for his son to. It's not really a racial thing. Everyone seems to know each other's names and all of that, but it's just it's bubbling underneath the surface. And I think that the point of the Martin Luther King and Malcolm X quotes at the end and specifically the order in which they're shown, I think, is to create some confusion and obfuscate what the movie might be about or at least give you some pause. And for people that don't know what the quotes are, I have them here. So before the credits roll, a Martin Luther King Jr. quote shows and it says, quote, violence as a way of achieving racial justice is both impractical and immoral. It is impractical because it is a descending spiral ending in destruction for all. The old law of an eye for an eye leaves everybody blind. It is immoral because it seeks to humiliate the opponent rather than win his understanding. It seeks to annihilate rather than to convert. Violence is immoral because it thrives on hatred rather than love. It destroys community and makes brotherhood impossible. It leaves society in monologue rather than dialogue. Violence ends by defeating itself. It creates bitterness in the survivors and brutality in the destroyers. So when that when that and I didn't remember the quotes at all at the end of this movie. So when that scrolled, I was like, oh, all right, this is an anti-violence message, right? Right. And And then then right after that, a Malcolm. Yeah. And then a Malcolm X quote shows up and it says, quote, I think there are plenty of good people in America, but there are also plenty of bad people in America. And the bad ones are the ones who seem to have all the power and be in these positions to block things that you and I need, because this is the situation. You and I have to preserve the right to do what is necessary to bring an end to that situation. And it doesn't mean that I advocate violence. But at the same time, I am not against using violence in self-defense. I don't even call it violence when it's self-defense. I call it intelligence End quote. So those are the two quotes and in the order that they're shown, I think, is relevant and important. And it creates a lot of confusion because it's like, OK, so that's not an anti-violence message. And maybe both of these guys are right. And I, that's kind of what I really enjoy about the film is that it's just total, totally open to interpretation. I really enjoy that because I think, like you said, it's controversial. Some people take something different out of it than others. It was really controversial when it came out. I was reading about how there was you know, seemingly racist ideas that black people wouldn't be able to see the film without going crazy and rioting and and uh, all of that. But I didn't really understand that interpretation of it, not only because that interpretation seems racist to me, but because it seems to be a very at the end of the day, a pro black film that speaks to the police brutality that they experience, the underlying racism, the gentrification of their neighborhoods the different also races that are represented in the film. We see a little bit of the Puerto Rican experience. We see a little bit of the Korean immigrant experience. And the scene, of course, at the end when the Korean guy, it, which I think was ad-libbed, actually, as far as I understand, when he's swinging his broom at them to try to stop them from bringing down his 
building and he's like, I'm I'm black, too, or whatever. Right. And it shows you that, like, the, the collective nature of being a minority in the United States is is powerful in that neighborhood, too. It's not necessarily only about black people, but also about the Hispanic and Puerto Rican experience. Again, Mookie's kid's mom is Puerto Rican and also about the Koreans across the street that we see from the from the uh, Sal's famous pizzeria. So I think that there's just it's amazing how once the tension is released at the very end of the film that you are flooded with all of this meaning and you don't really know what to make of it because the movie kind of just gets you there so slowly and almost lulls you into a sense of comfort and understanding that's that's shattered like that glass window is shattered and i i think it's it's a really it's really good storytelling and it's really good filmmaking i'm no uh cinephile or whatever i don't know a lot about film but it just seems to me to be a very wonderfully paced film that not and not every film can be can be or should be paced like this but it just crescendos out of nowhere it really does and that's what i that's what i love about it yeah you're absolutely right and it's funny man because even with like issues like police brutality so at the end radio rahim is killed by the cops it's interesting because they almost present the police in the beginning is also and in the middle of the film is also not really the enemy you know they almost lull you into a false sense of security or at least that's my interpretation of it there too like the guy the italian guy's car gets washed out by the fire hydrant <laughs> and the cops are kind of fucking with them yeah oh right? yeah like they don't really seem to be interested at all in finding who did it the one tall, like buff white cop walks up to the fire hydrant and just closes it and is not really like trying to fuck with anyone. He's just <laughs> saying, like, don't make me come back here, basically. You know, then you see the cops in the pizza parlor getting their food and they're kind of having a bit of a like, a I don't know, a semi racist conversation. Really not really. I don't know if you want to call it racist, but like saying, like, why are you still here? What are you doing in this neighborhood, et cetera? But they almost make it seem like everything's cool on the beat, too. So everything just kind of comes to a head and you realize that none of the characters are who they seem to be. I mean, even Mookie, I find Mookie to be a frustrating character. Definitely. I don't think he's necessarily a good person, you know, and so that's a little annoying, too. At the very least, he's lazy and he takes advantage of people. But he also kind of if Spike Lee is telling the truth, and I assume he is, it's his movie that throwing the garbage can through the window at the end was not meant to save Sal from the horde, then why did he do it? He's responsible in a lot of ways for the riot that occurs outside that store. He really not is. saying he's responsible for Radio Raheem's death because that's the cops shouldn't be roughing and killing people up, killing people like that. And that's always the problem when these black men are killed during the course of a of a crime being committed or the cops confronting them about a, a supposed crime. Just because they committed a crime doesn't mean they should be killed for the crime, especially when they haven't even had a chance at justice yet in the court system for whatever it is they committed. So regardless of how Radio Raheem found himself in that situation, he shouldn't have been killed. But I also have to say that Mookie is responsible for what happened there. And that really frustrated me. And I thought it was kind of interesting for Spike Lee to put himself in that role of he's not really a villain, but it's just something he's definitely not the hero. So how do you feel about Mookie as a character and Spike Lee's performance and and what he's all about? Yeah, you're right, man. I mean, there's a lot of gray in there, and Mookie is a really frustrating character. I have to agree with you about that. I mean, since we're here, do you mind? I really want to see what you think of my theory for the ending. Do you mind if I share that with you? A lot of it has to do with Mookie, of yeah, course. Yeah, no, please. So, sure. 
in answering, you know, essentially what we're talking about is did Mookie do the right thing? What what or what was the right thing? So I think, and you guys think about how you feel about it too, because again, there's a there's a lot of personal takeaways here. And I could be missing something too. But I think Mookie in throwing that trash can through the window of the pizzeria, he's demonstrating to his peers in the neighborhood that he is in fact not ultimately complicit with the white people who he works for. So in other words, just because that's where he makes his living at Sal's and that's where he gets paid, he's proving, now I have to say as a caveat, he's proving genuinely or not. And I think there is reason to question Mookie's authenticity. We know he's irresponsible. We know he's an absentee parent. We know he doesn't see his girlfriend a lot. We know all he cares about is getting paid. He's very fixated on his money. So his authenticity, keep that on as a sidebar, because I think you could, you, know, you could really call his authenticity into question, his purposes, his reasons for doing things. He doesn't, but I think he's trying to prove, at least in an aesthetic way, at least outwardly, that he doesn't serve those masters in the end. He doesn't serve Sal in the end. And I don't, I don't think, I have to say, where I come down personally, I don't think him throwing the trash can through the window was doing the right thing. But I believe he probably felt that he needed to stand in solidarity as a black man at that point, not as Sal's, you know, third black son, which he essentially is thought of. And maybe he even in a more guarded capacity feels the same way for Sal. We know Sal sort of regards Mookie as a son. He's very good to Mookie. And you're right. We do hang a lot of hopes on the Sal character. I come down the same exact way on Salvador Kyle. I really do. I think for me, it's like, and I think it's because he reminds me so much of grandpa. I love Danny Aiello. He brings such a warmth. I think he brings more of a warmth to the character than was really intended, actually, because I think that's his who Danny Aiello is. I think he just has that magnetic quality to him. But you do hang your hopes on Sal. So when Mookie, and you see, you know, from the very early on, I want to I talk about the characters more in depth, including Sal, but you see Sal sort of in this environment, you see him treating people in the neighborhood fairly. You see him trying to get along. You see, until later in the film, you see him, you know, he, he, he's good natured. He has a sense of humor. He's tough on his sons, but there's a loving, everything's doving, you know, sort of done with a loving touch. Uh, you know, until a little early on when we see Sal, even Sal's sort of tendencies and his attitude shift, which is heartbreaking. But you can see that maybe for Mookie that there's a real maybe emotional strain for him because he's possibly being pulled between two worlds. You know, him of just being a black man and standing in solidarity with his friends, like bugging out and just the way he's perceived in the community. We know he's we already know he's a character of appearances, of aesthetics. He want, you know, he's got his his jersey and his Jordans, and he cares about his 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 the role in his pocket, and he's all about getting paid. He's all about getting paid. He's talking about to Jade. He's talking about to Tina. That's his whole thing. That's his whole credo, right? But ultimately, what Mookie does in doing that is we see him as an audience betraying the person perhaps that's best to him. In Sal, the person who is really the best to him. So, and I think really how I come down on Mookie is that ultimately he's a really selfish character. Again, we know that the master that he serves, up to the film's ending at least, is the almighty dollar, right? We know he's all about that knot. He's all about that 250 a week, you know? And 
here's the thing too, Kyle. If he really cared about his friend Bugging Out and his friend Radio Rahim or the Wall of Fame, why didn't he speak up about it earlier? There was plenty of time, even in the film, even in this two-hour window, that he could have come to Sal. Now, if anybody could have come to Sal, if anybody could have had Sal's ear, right? We know just in their interactions, Sal and Mookie's interactions, that it would have been Mookie. So why couldn't Mookie go to Sal and say and talk to Sal about his feelings about the wall? And, you know, hey, why can't we get a couple of brothers up on the wall? Why can't we get a picture of so-and-so and so, you know, Martin Luther King or Mal- Malcolm X or Jackie Robinson or a contemporary black athlete or a contemporary black entertainer or politician or author or poet or so on and so forth. So why didn't Mookie speak up? You know, Mookie is really a character that I would really call, again, I would call into question his purposes and his authenticity as, you know, being questionable. Now, here's the really heartbreaking thing, though. Sal is the one really who could have done the right thing by entertaining Bugging Out's demand to put some photos of the famous African-Americans on the wall. You do have a purely black, I mean, there are, as you said, there's Koreans in the neighborhood, there's Puerto Ricans, but you have an almost entirely black African-American clientele coming into your business. So I agree with Bugging Out on that point. Why not just give in and say, these are the people that almost entirely fuel your business. Wouldn't that have been the correct thing to do to put some, you know, some diversity up on that wall? You know, how hard would that have been? Sal's attitudes ultimately couldn't really truly transcend his ingrained biases. And that's, for me, one of the great tragedies of the film. Again, because you're kind of hanging your hopes on that character. You're putting a lot of stock in maybe having this one white guy. I mean, Sal and his son Vito are both. Vito is not a racist character, and I want to get into him more later on because I have a lot to say about Vito. But, you know, it all comes down to respect and respectful discourse, right? Conversation, talking things out calmly and intelligently. We all know that, non-threateningly. And making your points, but listening as well, which is, you know, a really big talking point for what's going on in the world right now, and rightly so. And true empathy, and realizing that there's two sides to every disagreement. Because inherently, you know, Sal feels like a better person than, let's say, his son Pino, who's just outwardly racist. You know, and I have, we have a lot to say about Pino, too, and I hope we could get there. I have a lot to say about that character. But, you know, take Sal and juxtapose him against his oldest son. And Pino, who we know is a racist, you know, Sal just looks like a better person. So we're hoping that whatever Sal has, whatever power he has, whatever attitudes he holds, whatever philosophies he holds dear, that maybe he could be the one to sort of pacify the situation and make things right. And in the end, what's really striking, what a a great takeaway for me is that really what it teaches you is there's no difference. There's virtually no difference between being more racist, in quotes, or less racist, in quotes. It all comes down to the same ending. It's all the same poison. So what really was the difference between Pino and Sal when it ended the way it ended? In other words, eventually they got Sal's goat. He broke Whatever biases that he held inside, whatever hatred he harbored within himself eventually did come out. You know, the walls broke down 
and that racism erupted regardless. So there's no difference between being a little racist and a lot racist. And that's a huge takeaway for me, Kyle. And the other thing is, too, I totally get what you're saying about the ending. It's very polarizing. And I could see Spike kind of doing it with a wink and a nod and sort of a sinister, you know, chuckle to put both quotes in there and leave people again, because if it ended with the MLK quote, it's a much different, it's a much different ending, but putting the both quotes in there. And again, like you said, in that order as well, in that ascending, descending order, I could see it trying to confuse the listener. Or you could say what I said earlier, maybe it's just the fact of like walking away and really having to get through that problem yourself, get through that equation and work it out on your own. But for me, I think maybe, I think my strongest feeling is that I think it really says that every, you know, every problem that we come across can't be handled the same way. And I have to say, I don't disagree with the Malcolm X quote. Because because think of it this way. I'm a pacifist. I'm all about unity. I'm all about empathy. I'm all about listening. I think it's super important. And nonviolence is super important. But let's say you do all those things properly, right? Let's say you have the discourse. You're respectful. You have the conversation. You're thoughtful. You're kind in your interactions. And you do everything right. And you're still and it still doesn't work. You know, it all just still blows back in your face. Then what's the answer? You know what I mean? And of course, I'm not advocating violence, but I'm saying I think that especially those attitudes when Malcolm Malcolm X was quoted with that, whether that was a passage or something he said in a lecture or if that was something he wrote, and I'm not sure. What really is the answer? I think two things. I think one, I can't really say because I'm not I'm not really, you know, as much as I hate to say it, I'm not part of that struggle. I'm not a black man, so I can't fool you and I and everybody else that is not a you know is not African American can't really speak to that struggle. We could stand shoulder to shoulder in solidarity, but we can't speak to it from the same you know from the same point that those people are standing from that same ground. We just can't. But the other thing is too, I don't think you could paint everything with the same brush. If you know certain things, you know, for me, if you know what's the answer, if I guess you could say plan A and plan B isn't working. You know, what is plan C then? Do you have to keep an open mind to other solutions? I don't know. But having to think about all of that from the perspective of the struggle and of this struggle that's been that we've been enduring and that people have been enduring and going through for so many years, I think it's hard to really quantify and I think it's really really important to double down on working it out for ourselves. And again, like we talked about last week on the show, having those conversations, talking it out, going through the pain of getting to that point of feeling comfortable with the outcome, with feeling comfortable on your perspective, but having to go through those growing pains, super important and super important that we do it together, if that makes sense. It does make sense, yeah. And I feel like... The imagery at the end of the movie is striking because the they call the firemen in when the place is getting burned down, and then the firemen turn their hoses on the rioters, which is really deep segregation Southern imagery for sure. 
And I agree with you, too, that I feel like, and as I said earlier, the quotes are presented in, before the credits in a certain order, I think, to make a white audience that I think often seeks Martin Luther King and his words of peace and prosperity and whatever, they seek that to feel better about situations. And I know that I've done that just because I feel like King was so effective compared to X that I feel like King should be sought out as a, a, a truth teller and someone to be modeled. But I also feel like we often seek him out to make ourselves feel better about racial injustice or to kind of point back towards the status quo. And so I think presenting those quotes in a certain order is is a really powerful statement to the white audience. And I also think that I agree with you. I think I don't have I'm anti-violence. I'm I'm, I'm anti-war. I don't know that I, I consider myself a pacifist, but I don't know if that's really true. I think that there's a place for violence and there's plenty of examples of violence being necessary and affecting good change. But I think more, much more often than not, violence is a mistake and should be the very last resort. But violence and self-defense is a righteous kind of violence, I think, usually. I think the question needs to be raised, though, with that quote from Malcolm X, was what was happening in that end scene self-defense? See, I think that that adds a lot more confusion to the situation where Sal goes off on Radio Raheem. Radio Raheem loses his life to brutal cops. Mookie throws the garbage can through the window before the cops show up. Or no, I'm sorry, after the cops show up. No, yeah, before the cops show up. Right, right. And I just feel like it's so morally gray that I think that the Malcolm X quote was chosen specifically to raise the question on if the violence shown at the end of the movie was in self-defense or not. Do you think that the the violence was in self-defense? You know what's interesting? I, I don't think the violence was in self-defense. And it's also our listener had stated about, had brought up the point of the person grabbing the till, the cash, the cash register till and taking the cash out of the register. I think, I think that is necessary to put in there because not only does it speak to our time or the nature of those things riding and everything, but there are, as we've seen in the last few weeks here, in, in, in this very United States, again, in real life, peop, there are opportunists, are opportunists, and there's all types in every neighborhood. There's good, there's bad, there's confused, there's misled, there's temporarily evil, there's true evil, there's true good, there's everything, right? There's, there, there's the misguided. So it's really important to depict all that. And I think if you want to make something really unsettling and uncomfortable and realistic and challenge the viewer, I think you need to see all those things. You need to see the people that are saying, you need to see the black people, even in seeing Radio Rahim killed unjustly by the white cop and then dragged away. You know, you need to see the white, the, the one non-African-American cop arguing to stop, you know, stop, dude, stop, he's dying, you know, type of thing. You need to see the group of black teens with the one not, you know, saying stop, not calling for violence. You need to see all colors in there. You need to see all attitudes. You need to really paint it with those specific brushes because that's who we are as people. There's all types. You know, even mother sister who seems very grounded, she seems to be like the old sage, have all this wisdom, the old elder of the neighborhood is calling, you know, almost like she's flashing back to maybe what she saw in earlier decades 
in, in various race riots or whatever she saw that she was kind of calling back up and reliving those things. So you, you, you see all those realistic portrayals of what it, you know, what's really happening. I think what's really interesting is that before Raheem and Sal are broken up, Raheem pretty clearly has the high ground and may even kill Sal. I mean, he's enraged. Sal was really the first one to get, you know, and, and again, you can't be just because Sal is very likable throughout the movie until his attitudes, until that sort of other Sal, dark Sal, as it were, you know, sort of pops out. He's the one who really gets violent first and smashing the radio, you know, he and he did that earlier in the film with taking out the bat when bugging out was being a pain in the ass earlier in the movie. So indeed, Sal is a little not, bit of foreshadowing. R- absolutely. And I mean, I think in the first five minutes of the film, Sal, when his sons are arguing outside the pizzeria, when he can't get them to sweep up, he he's kind of clenches his fist and looks up at the sky and says, I'm going to kill somebody today. You know, talk about the foreshadowing, right? That's in the first minutes of the film. So, you know, Sal is really he's not a good guy. You want him to be. At least we want him to be. You and I want him to be. I'm sure a lot of viewers felt that way. I'm sure a lot of Caucasian viewers feel that way because especially ones that feel like, you know, like racial equality is really important because we're kind of hanging our hopes again on that character, but he's not. He's got that gray area too. So Raheem having the high ground, I think, and I think Helene mentioned this when we were watching and she's like, you know, Raheem probably was going to kill Sal. There was no way anybody was going to stop him. That guy's huge. Sal's also big, but Sal's old. You know, you got to ascertain that Sal's at least in his 60s, right? His mid-60s at least. So Raheem being, if, if Mookie's 25, Raheem being a contemporary, do the math. You know, this guy could be 40 years younger than Sal. So, and you know, it, it really, I think that's what's so striking and that's what so gets your, gets your emotions going and that's what had so much resonance about the scene, that violent eruption at the end the fight, the scuffle, the melee, the rioting, the fire, the violence, everything is that you see all kinds when that, you know, again, you see the cop sort of, you know, saying, stop, man, he's dying. And and the guy, the big guy who actually the big, the big cop who you talked about earlier was closing the hydrant and threatening the neighborhood kids. That's Danny Aiello's son in real life, by the way. And that cop choking Raheem with the nightstick and the other cop, the other plainclothes detective or whatever, the other big buff cop that comes with the the black tank top and the badge around his neck, they're kind of choking him out. And it cuts to Raheem's feet off the ground. And it's almost like a lynching, dude. It's almost like, you know, you think back to like a, a, a lynching, a hanging. It's really upsetting. So, you know, I don't, you know, of course, murder was not justified. They They, they needed to restrain him. And they needed to take him away. And things needed to, you know, of course, there needed to be punishments. Everybody, Sal was involved too. But the fact that it leads to murder and it make, I mean, it makes sense of what Spike Lee's message, really the whole reason why he wanted to make this film was because of an unjust, of a cop killing a kid who was supposedly, the cop, the cop or cops were supposedly completely in the wrong. That's what that's really the the key message that Spike Lee seemingly wanted to send. So it doesn't surprise me, but the the fact that it escalated to a mur- to murder and killing and then everything those cops sort of dragging away the dead body very upsetting. And then that next wave of cops coming in 
for the you know and the and the firemen like you said coming in for the riding it's really just the way everything sort of sequentially occurs is just so upsetting it's so uncomfortable to have to sit through and you know again it doesn't you know for me it's like it's such a shame that it had to it had to end like that but again you saw i think the cops you saw their their attitudes early they they the cops are racist Yes, they have the whole thing with Frank Vincent and the convertible and the fire hydrant and they're not, you know, Joe, Mo and Joe Black. Yeah, Mo and Joe Black, you know, the whole thing. It's funny, again, that levity, the cops, I think that's just the cops not being helpful. It doesn't make the cops not racist. So right. again, you know, trying to, again, subverting your expectations. And like you said very well already, Kyle, I think the movie does kind of put you there. You're trying to get your bead on each character and their stances and their philosophies and if they're racist and if they're not racist. And really, you really there's a lot to cull through. There's really a lot to cull through. And I think at you and I as non-racist people, I think we probably see it. I'd love to see how people with racist attitudes see this movie because they probably bring a whole nother thing to it. You know, where they're hope where we're hoping that these characters are not gonna act out on their hatred. Maybe they're hoping that these characters are gonna not not, you know, act out on their hatred. So this movie brings a lot to the table. And again, it's, it's, it's one of those films, maybe more so than any other movie I could think of readily think of in my mind that you bring a lot of it of how this movie plays out. I think you as the viewer bring a lot of what that's going to be, what that experience is going to be to the table coming in, which is, you know, there's not a lot of movies that could say that. Yeah. It's, it's interesting too, because, well, I agree with you on that. And I think it's interesting that the movie also represents a sort of racial pecking order as well, where it shows the tension again between the different groups of minorities in Bed-Stuy. It shows there's a really great scene with like the Puerto Rican guys on the on the stoop listening to their radio. Radio Raheem comes by. They're kind of competing with each other and talking shit to each other. And then the old black dudes that are sitting there are talking shit about or at least a couple of them are talking shit about the Koreans that are there. Radio Raheem has a a situation with the Koreans. The Koreans don't trust the mayor and are often busting his balls. But at the end of the day, all of the minority races pecking order as represented to each other is overcome by this strife they have with white America, in this case, represented by Italian-Americans. And I find that really interesting, too, because... It's accurate in the sense that, I mean, again, we're white, so we can't speak to it personally, but all minorities have unfortunate, often profoundly racist experiences at the hands of white people to this day in the United States. That was certainly true in the 80s and certainly even more true before that. And I feel like that's played out in the film as well. There's these little flashpoints but you see that at the end of the day, it's overcome by this animosity towards white America um, and the white people in their neighborhood that still serve them and all of that, but that it quickly pops off in and goes south. And I like that because it shows a sort of solidarity that is often discussed, whether you believe what do you whether you agree with intersectionality or any of the, those kinds of more modern sociological and political philosophies. That's central to it, which is that there's a pecking order of grievance 
And all of their racial grievances with each other are outstripped by their racial grievances with white people. And so I think that Spike Lee does a really good job of representing that in really subtle ways throughout the film, even with Mookie and Tina's mom. There seems to be a level of racial animus. He's a deadbeat, so you don't know if it's just because of that. Right. And he's kind of making fun of her by calling the kid Hector and all this kind of stuff. So there's all of these little pieces of subtext, racial subtext that boils over in the assault on the Italian-Americans in the neighborhood at Sal's Pizzeria. So I think it's really cleverly done. And I think is an the people of color that listen to our show can tell us. But I think that that's a that level of solidarity seems to make a lot of sense to me. Even if we as white people who don't harbor racist feelings, you and I dig in, it's unfortunate that people feel that way about us. Obviously, you can't help but understand why they feel that way, considering the history of the United States. And and there are I mean, you see it on Twitter and on Facebook all the time. It's just it's fucking crazy white people out there that are still doing crazy shit, right? you know, and <laughs> saying crazy shit in 2020, surrounded by cameras and microphones and all this kind of stuff. So you can only imagine what was going on before that. And that's what every time I see videos like that, I'm really disheartened because it's like, Jesus Christ, like what's wrong with people? And like, what was being said and done before smartphones when you couldn't just whip this shit out and ruin someone when people didn't have that fear? You really have to question the sanity of the people that still do that stuff because they don't have that fear. So you know that they really harbor these deep and sinister thoughts. But all of the people on the borderline that can think things through and understand that they just have to keep stay composed, even though they want to say horrible shit to someone. It's it's put it below the surface, which is why I think in our society we have reached another bubbling point. Does that make sense? You Absolutely. Know, like, Absolutely. Yeah. That that layer of decorum. Right. That outward facing self that maybe not be the true self and how that eventually sh- breaks down and shatters. That's not. The real self, the real self is the real self. Everything else is a facade and that facade eventually is going to break, right? Definitely. Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good and then a bang in the night and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home and I can tell you, I know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com. Stefan Cantonella wrote into us, we're Italian-Americans, so we can speak to this. How do you feel about the portrayal of Italian-Americans? 
in the film. So Italian-Americans are not very well portrayed in this film. They're not really well portrayed in a lot of films <laughs> or TV shows. If you watch The Sopranos, Dagan and I are both huge fans of The Sopranos. We did an episode all about it. They're deeply racist in that show towards black people. In fact, there's that whole subplot with Meadow and, his, and her black boyfriend where Tony basically goes off on her and on him for even being together and all of that. But the way that they just throw around derogatory terms and stuff like that, there is a history of deep racism in the Italian community. It's not to say that there's not histories of deep racism in the, in the wasp community or anything like that. Of course there is. That's deep South Confederate heritage that's based entirely on one race being better than the other. So it's not, of course, exclusive to Italian-Americans. And Italian-Americans came here pretty late. Our family got here pretty late. Right. The Italian side of our family. So I think the racism is born from something else. I think it's born, not that it makes it right, because it's not right. It's all the same, really. But it's born from, I think, competition and social climbing and economics and all that kind of stuff that I think brings that to a head. And it's a part of... Italian culture in in a lot of portrayals of Italian culture in America. Yeah. But I'm curious, but I'm curious what you make of the portrayal. We only know three Italian people in the the entire movie. They're all related to each other. But what do you think about their portrayal? How accurate do you think their viewpoints are and their feelings are about black America? And how does that kind of parlay to the real Italian American experience in your mind? I think they're really genuine portrayals, Kyle. I knew people like all three of these people. I have a sort of facsimile in my mind for every one of these characters. You know, you have the two, you know, you have Sal and then you have his two sons and those two sons have two very different attitudes. And I feel like I know somebody like each one of them. Sal reminds me of a lot of people that I grew up with in my life who, and I have to say the people, my elders, the, the, the adults who I looked up to in every phase of my growing up. I knew people that harbored racist attitudes, and I knew people, Italian people, that didn't harbor racist attitudes that were just the opposite, that really would actually share with me the opposite ideas, and indeed ideals and their sort of mantra on life. So I knew everybody. I, I knew somebody with every credo. You know, I knew a lot of Italian people, adults, who I were in my sphere growing up, whether they, I admired them or not, that did have a sort of, that's like many of us, like many people on, on earth, Italian or not, put up that front, that facade. Very charming, very likable. Maybe they are genuinely likable, very warm people, very, very charming people. Don't talk about, they aren't demonstrative about their bigotry but they harbor those ideas. And again, because those ideas were taught to them by their parents and their grandparents or their aunts and uncles and their elders. And that that's, you know, again, that's racism. That's what's taught. It's handed down from generation to generation. Dennis Leary does that stand up bit about his son. The only thing he hates, he's two years old. The only thing he hates is naps. You know, everything, everything else is that he's going to hate is going to be learned or not, or hopefully not learned. And so, and then I knew people that, I knew a few people in my life that were more demonstrative about their hatred that would vocalize it and say really scathing it, scathing things, things that I always found horrifying because I had, again, I had that grounding. I had those people in my life teaching me the right thing. And we also grew up in a very, we talk about this on the show sometimes, but it's true. 
We grew up in a very racially mixed environment. We were very lucky that way. All the way from being an elementary school kid, my very earliest years in school, kindergarten and onward, we, you know, what there were a percentage of not only black African-American people, but Korean and Chinese and Japanese, Puerto Rican, Dominican, Afghani, Indian, you know, everything. We really grew up in a sort of a, on Long Island in the suburbs of New York City in a melting pot. And so we learned, you know, that sort of that sort of philosophy of just everybody's the same. It never even occurred to us that that was what our surroundings looked like. You know, and yeah. not only not only visually, college, you know, not only from a racially a racial standpoint or a skin color standpoint, but socioeconomic too. You know, we grew up with very poor kids, a lot of middle middle of the road kids, middle class kids, and some really wealthy kids. And you know, I grew up with a really some really wealthy black kids too. There was a there was a black kid, a great friend of mine. He, I think he ended up, I think he ended up being the homecoming king in high school actually very he was always very very popular became always a great athlete very smart very very intelligent all the way from elementary school onward became the quarterback star quarterback of the football team but always you know sort of always that genuine person always really likable never acted like a jerk and his both of his parents were doctors so we we really had all sorts we really had a very unique upbringing it's Really, I don't think that's exclusive to just where we grew up in the Bellport area of Long Island. Certainly other people have that, but I think it is kind of a special and unique thing and a privilege to grow up with because we never, those ideas, I don't remember, and I was telling this to Helene the other day, we grew up in a very middle of the road, if not poor public school system, right? our, Our district was not a good, a, a gen, generally not a good school district. It was definitely below average, I would say. But I don't remember anything ever being racially charged going to school. There were a lot of fights. It got into a lot. There were a lot of fights. There were a lot of scuffles. There were a lot of, um, there was gang violence later on when I was in high school. It was not, it was probably became unsafe, but I never remember any of that being racially charged ever in my life. I don't remember any of that. So we were really lucky to have that sort of perspective. But do I think, so to come down to it, I'm being really long-winded about it, but to come down to it, I do know a lot of, I do think the the three Italian-Americans that we get to know in the movie, I do think they're really grounded portrayals. They ring true. And, you know, I'm proud to say that one of those characters, one of those three characters is like a lot of characters that I knew growing up in the younger son of Vito, that he really didn't share the the same attitudes as his older, slightly older brother. And even with his older brothers trying to initiate him and trying to bring him around and trying to have the talks with him and stuff like that, it's really striking. I wanted to go into this when I talked about Pino and Vito and their characters, but it's really a striking message and one that really hits home for me, that two characters could grow up in the same household, in the same place, the same neighborhood, with the same parents, the same people, right? The same family structure and come away with those two different attitudes where Vito is just like, doesn't understand why Pino is so hateful against black people. And maybe Sal is somewhere, ultimately you think Sal is more like Vito, but he ends up becoming more like Pino. So you could say Sal is somewhere maybe in between them, you know, where 
uh, you know, in regards to his racial attitudes. So in uh, just in those three characters, you sort of get all three things. What you know? What's, what's a weird thing to me, Kyle? I want to know what you think about this too. But one thing that really still kind of bothers me in the film about Sal is you see you see this man. He's very. He seems like a very decent man. He seems kind. The movie opens. They pull up to the pizzeria early in the morning. He he's in the car. He's yelling hello across the street to Sweet Dick Willie and his his uh, entourage over there. And he comes in. The mayor comes in. He gives the mayor a dollar to sweep up out front. He's telling Vito to shut up and leave him alone. You see him having these warm exchanges with Mookie. He seems like a really decent individual. But as soon as he's challenged, right? As soon as, you know, this goof in bugging out, we got to talk about John Carl Esposito and, you know, Gus Fring and the whole thing. But as soon as bugging out comes around and starts challenging, Sal, he has no tolerance for it. He goes from zero to 100 in like three seconds. So that's really striking to me that he, he, get, he gets so ratcheted up so quickly because he's such a cool character. He, he, he's really sort of a kindly, he seems like he's coming across as a very kindly and benevolent character. And then he just gets, he gets cranked up so quickly. He, he gets enraged bringing the bat out and telling me, you know, Telling, telling him he's gonna smash him, and that you know I got your boycott swinging, and the whole thing, you know the whole thing. So how do you, what do you feel about the portrayal of the three Italian Americans? You have, you you definitely have a stance on this, and what do you think about what I just said about Sal too? Yeah, no, I think you're right. It, I think that with Vino, I think what's interesting about his character to me is his the lack of racism in the younger son and the and the racism in the older son indicates to me that we learn our tendencies, whatever they might be, better or worse, hopefully better for all of us, not just from the family system, but from those around us. Yes. And it's clear that, you know, it, it's clear to me in, in some way, and you might disagree, but that Pino's character and Vito's character are just hanging out with different people because they clearly come from the same place. And so... It's about those different influences in your life and how you invite them in, which is the same you hear about with how you get into lives of crime or how you get into dishonest cycles or whatever the case might be. It comes from more than just your upbringing. Your upbringing is a major part of it, but there's more to it than that. And so I think that that's like what's played out between them as well. And I think you're right about Sal. I think that he has a hair trigger. You want to know more about about what's going on inside his head because I'm so glad you brought up the thing with the mayor and the dollar he gives him to sweep up like he does this stuff multiple times in the movie and he seems like a really beloved character in this neighborhood and someone who takes care of people he does it later with Smiley who's like a mentally I don't know what you would call mentally retarded I guess person who walks around with a Malcolm X and Martin Luther King pictures and tries to sell them or whatever and it's kind of just an institution in the neighborhood as well and he's pissing uh, John Totoro's character off at some point point and then Sal goes out there and gives him money and, and tries to treat him right and tries to de-escalate the situation it's just yeah. it's so interesting the bait and switch with that character I think in some way is a bait and switch on himself you it, you wonder if he knew if he had it in him himself maybe he had it in him when he was younger 
when racism was much more commonplace and, dare I say, unfortunately acceptable in the United States than it was in 1989, certainly now. So maybe Sal didn't even realize that he had it in him until he did. Great point. You know? Great point. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, if he went 25 years without real incident in that neighborhood, then you have to assume that whatever festered inside of him was deeply buried and he might have forgotten it was there at all. And I, I'm, I'm very interested by that. I really think, you know, Danny Aiello getting nominated but not winning the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor in this film, I think is so well earned because there's so much texture and in, in, an interest in this character between what what seems like a very decent and good man and a man that harbors, like you said, rage and a hair trigger and clearly a lot of racism inside of him, even though he's made his money and kind of facilitated this business in a predominantly black, predominantly minority neighborhood with, like you said, a black clientele and that it all happens over something so meaningless yet so powerful to the people that probably go there, which is just the representation that they see or lack thereof on the wall of fame with all Italian Americans and his kind of stubbornness to not address that. And I think that there's an interesting conversation between Pino and Mookie over the jukebox or over like the cigarette machine towards the back of the pizzeria when for the first time, John Totoro's character is kind of thrown around the N-word and Mookie kind of just confronts him and says, like, who's your favorite actor? Who's your favorite yeah. musician? Who's your favorite? And it's all black guys. And and Pino's unable to kind of articulate why he doesn't see them as black, why he doesn't see Prince or whoever as black, but he see, or whoever, Eddie Murphy. But he sees all these other people as not only black, but really subhuman. And it's an interesting thing because it truly doesn't make any sense. And I think that that scene is really important in illuminating the ending a little bit more, that this stuff is senseless. It doesn't really make any sense. We don't even know, and I'm saying the royal we, we don't even know why or why we harbor these thoughts, where they come from. We can't explain them. Like, you know what I mean? The, the The genetic code, the genome of these feelings to these characters is a mystery. And it probably is a mystery to a lot of people. And it's probably subconscious to a lot more people. And that's why I was saying earlier that it's so fascinating and fucked up when you see these people going off at Price Club or at a gas station or whatever the case might be saying crazy shit. It's like, holy Christ, if you're willing to do this when someone has a phone in your face and you know it's going to find its way on social media, I can't imagine what people are saying behind closed doors. I can't imagine what people were saying in the years beforehand. And it's funny you brought up Bellport where we're from because... I was just saying this to someone recently, and this might sound like very typical something a white person wants to say, but I wasn't even really fully aware that people harbored these thoughts until I was an adult. It didn't even really, it never came up, you know? Right. I had black friends, I had Puerto Rican friends and Asian friends. My best friend, as everyone knows, but I met him in college, is Puerto Rican. And I've I've seen people treat him in racist manners, which was really the first time I had ever experienced or saw that and understood it a little bit. Can't really understand it, but at least bear witness to it, unfortunately. But growing up surrounded by black people, surrounded by Puerto Rican people and Chinese people, whatever the case might be, in a very multicultural area like we were, which isn't necessarily common on the island, but was very common where we lived on the island. Yes, it's it was it wasn't a thing that came. Like I never 
like you said, we we grew up in a pretty violent place. There were a lot of fights, a lot of animosity. People did split up in some way by racial lines. Looking back, although I wasn't super aware of that and I had black friends and I had Asian friends, so I wasn't really a part of that. But you could see that that kind of is the way it broke up, too. But I don't remember there being any racial animus at all. And I don't know. If that was just obliviousness or if I just wasn't a party to it, therefore, I was just not aware that it was happening or whatever. But it wasn't until I was an adult that I realized that people even really harbored these feelings in modern times. It was almost like something that lived in Jim Crow, Alabama or with Bull Connor and all this stuff that you read about and see documentaries on, but didn't think that still existed. And then we see in 1989 in this film that it still exists. We see in 2020 with some of the people's responses, much more racial, visceral responses to what's going on there now, it still exists today in the 21st century. It's a really unfortunate, wild, shitty situation. And that's why I wanted to do something on this film because I just felt like it was so apropos in, a, in the worst way possible. Yeah. You know, like yeah. I, I just, when I was watching the film, I just could not believe it, especially at the end. It's crazy. Yeah. So it's really, it really hits home. It's really still of the utmost relevance, which is upsetting. And I think really important to realize. I wonder, Kyle, about what Spike Lee might be saying about a character like Sal, like Danny Aiello, Sal. Now, Robert De Niro was, they tried to get Robert De Niro, Spike really wanted De Niro to play the role. And I think he couldn't bring the same type of warmth. Now we see De Niro, we see a little warmth in a De Niro portrayal, like playing the dad in what's the name of the film that I'm thinking about where Chaz Palmentieri plays the gangster and he plays the dad. Oh, Bronx tale. We see, you know, so De Niro's portrayal, not a typical De Niro portrayal. Did we see a little warmth in that? But I think the warmth that really that ILO brings really does subvert your expectations. And I wonder what it might be saying. And if it's this, it's a really powerful message that a character like Sal is really only able to conduct himself in a certain manner, you know, kindly, gentlemanly, fair, on his own terms, which isn't the right way to do it. In other words, because that's not really being truly accepting. So really the only way he could behave in a certain way is until his personal boundaries are crossed. And that's as much of a racist as an overt racist. And that's what's upsetting about it. Because again, you're just putting on that outfit. You're just putting out that outward appearance, that facade. that And, and that's the type of thing. And that's maybe speaks to that hair trigger or getting so, you know, getting so upset so quickly when those lines are crossed. Because he does really harbor those those biases and that bigotry. And, you know, again, it's like, that's the thing. That's the really powerful thing. It's nice to put on a smile and act like you believe all the right things. But there's two problems with that. First of all, it shows that you know what the right thing really is. You're just not able to go there, which is upsetting. And it shows that even after all this time, you're not able to change the nature of it that you're you're that and that no matter what you do no matter what front you present to society that shit's going to crumble and that's why things don't get better because people spend all this time and energy 
perhaps putting up these fronts, laying out these facades, planning this perfect appearance and this outward appearance of being racially cool and accepting and believing in unity and all that kind of stuff instead of really soul searching and trying to actually get there. You know, the, the, this is why maybe we see these breakdowns. This movie is 31 years old and we're still talking about this and it's still going on in our world. You know, the, all the effort and the energy is being, being put in the wrong thing. You know, and, and, and the other thing is, dude, that's so frustrating for me. And again, it's like a soapbox for me and I don't mean to come across as obnoxious. I really don't. But in my heart of hearts, I just don't understand it. I don't get it. Like what you know, like that's really what it comes down to is appearance. Cause you're you're making these judgments from afar most of the time. You're not you're judging somebody on the color of their skin or the the way their car looks or what clothes they're wearing or the status of their house or these other things. It's just, you know, it's pure it's being purely judgmental. And it's it's judging people on the on the complete wrong basis of how they should be judged. You know, it's the same as judging people for their sexual orientation or judging people on their the religion that they were born under or the religion that they later chose. It's like th- these are t- either we were born the way we are or we make choices. You can't you know, you uh, you can't make the judgments based on those things. It's th- these are things that a child knows. And that's the upsetting thing is that this is all learned, this is all handed down. So, you know, it's really all about either you know, embracing the right philosophies or breaking the chain that you came up with if it's the wrong mindset, you know, and really moving on from that because there's no, there's really no other solution than to break it, you know, generationally. And I really felt like, and maybe we still are, and maybe the setback looks more pronounced and more dire than it really is, but I really thought we were making more progress over the last 20 years or so. And, you know, the fact that maybe the idea that maybe we aren't is just so heart-wrenching to me. It's just like, you know, just visualizing that, you know, that taking two steps back when we made maybe three steps forward or maybe taking two steps back when we only made one step forward. Just losing ground on this is just really like, I, I just wish the whole world could just double down on it and really now get to the bottom of it. Instead of spending the next 20 years trying to paint yourself as a non-racist, it's it's those people's job to really try to practice the idea of not being racist. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's yeah. what it comes down to. It's interesting, Dagan, because you say something, you touch on something here, which I think is worth talking about, which is people of color often say, and I think rightfully so, that we can't fully understand their experience. There's no doubt about that. I mean, I, I couldn't understand what it's like to be a black man walking down the street and they couldn't understand what it's like to be a white man walking down the street, even though I think that they probably would like to understand that better and have that experience because it's certainly less fraught with uh, some sort of endemic danger. But from our perspectives, and I don't want to speak for you, but from my perspective, it's just funny that it's not funny. I guess it's just ignorant from my perspective, although it's an ignorance just based on the way we were we were raised, where I just I just didn't know that people felt this way. And it really makes you think about all of the many millions of households in the United States and families and like what's going on in some of these households, like what's being said, what's being taught, what is being learned as conventional knowledge. And it's not just in the South. It's everywhere. You know, Boston, I went to college in Boston. Boston's a profoundly racist place. And that shouldn't be lost on people. It happens everywhere. Boston has a notoriously 
deep racist past. Right. Going up to the modern day. And so it's not I, I, I understand people like to point at the South and the ex-Confederacy and that's totally fine. That's totally normal. Um, there is a lot of racism in the South, but it, there's a lot of racism just everywhere. And it makes you just wonder about the prejudice that's being, like you said, passed on from generation to generation, how that's foisted upon friends and friend groups that might have otherwise grown up in very egalitarian households and, and other things and how dynamic it is. And I guess how the certain way we mixed down in our family and with our friend groups and the way we were exposed to things didn't expose us to that reality until we were older. And on one hand, I'm really happy that I didn't know any better because it's so it's ne- it's a negative thing to understand. But on the other hand, I think being equipped with that knowledge that people felt this sinister way would have better equipped me to understand it as an adult more quickly. So it's a it's like a six of one half dozen of the other situation. And it's unclear to me whether we're taking steps forward or steps backwards. I think from my white perspective that we are taking many steps forward. I, I reject this idea that the United States is as racist as it's ever been. You know, I think the United States is less racist than it's ever been. I just think that it's it's not not racist enough. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Those are those are two different things. I, I think that sometimes we have to acknowledge the progress that I think that like our generations are amongst the most tolerant or are the most tolerant, peaceful, nonviolent and accepting generations in the existence of of America. And America is getting safer for everyone. Every year that passes by, America gets less and less violent. There's less violent crime, fewer murders, fewer rapes, fewer of any kind of murders. Yeah. People like, you know, opponents of Black Lives Matter and all that kind of stuff like the point on the horrific statistics of, of black on black crime, which is true. There is a lot of black on black crime in the United States. But that's also down. Everything's down, right? Like whether it's cop, cop, cops killing people, white people killing white people, white killing people, killing black people, black people killing Hispanics, Hispanics killing whites, whatever the case might be, rapes and and violent other uh, violent acts. Things are getting better. It's just not good enough. And it's it's hard for us, I think, as a society to separate that. So when we reach these flashpoints, we are unable to kind of sift through it all to see like, well, this is unfortunate. This is horrible. This is unjust X, Y or Z. But it's not. Thankfully, the way it was 50 years ago, it's not the way it was 30 years ago. But then you see a movie like this and you wonder if that wisdom is actually true or not. Right. So it's it's, it's a very confusing thing. And, that, and that's why I think that this movie is so thought provoking and so interesting and so powerful is because it's just it just makes it it is it does have the nostalgic thing like you said it's we both love the 80s and it's got that really nostalgic feel with the fashion and the music and <laughs> the public enemy fight the power just playing constantly and and whatever and the boom boxes and the even everything going right on down to the way the products are portrayed the pepsi cans and the miller light and all that kind of stuff it's, there's a lot of nostalgia there but it's unfortunate that the nostalgia is predicated on an all too familiar scene from where we are today of racial violence, of misunderstanding, of prejudice and all of those things. And it sucks. But that's what makes this movie so interesting. And I, I Spike Lee just could have ne- never have probably known. Maybe he did. Maybe he did know that this would always be a, a thing. And just like they were pointing at the Howard Beach murders and all of that. And today people just point at other murders in New York City, like Eric Garner and and other unfortunate yeah. scenes, yeah. you know? Yeah. 
And obviously Rodney King in L.A. happened just a couple of years after this came out. So that was obviously the uh, probably the biggest flashpoint in racial injustice in the United States in the post segregation era until probably right now. So that was huge. It was huge. So, Dig, I, I do want to talk about some of the other characters because we've not been able to touch on them so much. Absolutely. So Nick Gagas wrote into us and said, Sweet Dick Dagan and Coconut Colin. <laughs> this 30 year old film is an unsettling reminder that hate crimes and police brutality are nothing new. From the Howard Beach incident, which inspired this film, to the beating of Rodney King and the more recent murders of Eric Garner and George Floyd, I can't help but wonder if we will ever mature enough as a species to fully accept one another. Can we ever learn to be productive instead of to be productive instead of destructive during the aftermath of tragedy? Can we ever hope to wake up and do the right thing? What say you? Now that we have technology readily available to capture proof of cold-blooded murder committed by peace officers, do you believe there is hope that excessive force will be outlawed? Will new recruits require thorough background checks and mental evaluations followed by mandatory quarterly checkups? Do you feel all that is necessary? As a white person with anxiety issues, it rattles, saddens, and angers me to the core when I see what some police get away with. I can never imagine the fear, anguish, and suffocation a black person with anxiety disorder or not must feel on a daily basis. I sincerely hope all this chaos eventually results in positive change. It would be sad wa- sad ways if it didn't. Um, so we'll talk about all of that. And we have really talked about that th- during the course of the last couple episodes. But he says, on a lighter note, who is your favorite character in the film and why? Who speaks most to you? I relate most to the Chinese grocery store owner who gets shit on by everyone. Thank you for one of the finest programs in the current world of entertainment. It's fucking mint peace and love from L.I. Hey, thank nice. you. Thank you, Nick. I appreciate you writing. And so, Dig, who what characters speak to you? I mean, there's such a tapestry of characters that we've not even really touched on. Sure. I'm wondering which characters other than the Italian families. We talked about Mookie and others. Uh, which characters speak to you the most? I mean, we talked so much at length about Sal and how, you know, the warmth and the warmth of Danny Aiello and that character and that character having a lot of nostalgic resonance for me, just re- really reminding me of older Italian men that I grew up with in, in many ways. But I think ultimately who my favorite characters are, Carl, who are kind of like the champions of this movie, I realized, are Vito, the younger son, uh, Vito, Fer- uh, what's his last name? How do we pronounce it? Frangione and, and the mayor. And I'll tell you why. Because to make a long story short, both of those characters are the two ultimately uncorruptible, racially uncorruptible characters at the end of the film. Those two characters never act out racially in a negative way. They remain steadfast in their attitudes of racial justice. Now, Vito never crosses the line. We never see him behave racial, you know, with any kind of bigotry or bias in any way. And the same for the mayor. The mayor is the one who kind of, how do you want to say it? He kind of, once the destruction and the rioting begin in the neighborhood, he's the one that whisk away Sal and his sons out of harm's way and sort of pull them aside. And so he's that one unwavering. There's, there's one, as I see it, there's one unwavering, white or Caucasian character in the film and one unwavering black African-American character in the film. And that's Vito and the mayor. And for me, that's why, because when everybody else is pulled down by, you know, this kind of racial maelstrom, Vito and the mayor are the only ones that stay who they are. They stay true to who they are and don't succumb to that hatred. So for me, and just speaking to who I am and what's important to me and my values, I take that away from those characters. So those two, I would have to say, 
they're ne- you know they're not necessarily the most entertaining characters although they're both great uh they're both wonderfully well fleshed out characters it's amazing how well fleshed out the characters are in, the, in a two-hour piece like this but yeah those those two are my favorite what about for you c yeah there are a couple of interesting characters i i, I really enjoy the portrayal of the mayor again by ozzy davis who we've talked about quite a bit. He died back in 2005, unfortunately. He's an OG actor going all the way back to 1950. He was in some other Spike Lee films as well, and we'll talk about some other Spike Lee films towards the end of the show. And his wife, Ruby D, who died in 2014 playing mother-sister. I, I really loved the older perspective that these older, more seasoned black people brought. And you could see it in the way they interacted with the neighborhood. Mother-sister was kind of just passively observing the mayor kind of roving around, but trying to preach peace. He's kind. He doesn't go back at anyone. People are giving him a hard time, making fun of him, calling him an alcoholic, whatever the case might be. And he kind of just takes it. He wants to get on the good side of mother sister, which I think is, is interesting. So I, I really enjoyed the more, again, seasoned perspective that they brought to the, to the movie because you could tell, and you said this earlier, that even though it's not ever defined very much, it's a little bit more defined with the mayor than it is with mother sister, but we don't really know what they saw and what they went through. We do find out that the mayor seems to have grown up in the South. Yeah. Because he talks about playing baseball down there. We know that he has some kids and and had a hard time. It's unclear if he's maybe talking about experiences from the depression or something like that. Or if it's just something after the war or whatever. I don't know how old he's supposed to be, so it's hard to tell. Probably not the Depression, so probably something after that. And the kind of the hard time that the kids give him about not supporting his family and all that as he's talking about his pain. So I really do dig those characters, too. And I like Samuel L. Jackson's portrayal of uh, Mr. Senor Love Daddy, who's like the radio host in the 108 radio station. This is actually one of his earliest roles, which I didn't realize. Yeah. And pre Pulp Fiction, right? Pre Jules. You know, it really reminded me a lot. There's a lot of I don't want to say a lot, but there are a few pieces of overlap between this and the Warriors. And this is one of them of having like a radio host that kind of narrates. Yeah. Passively narrates the situation. Absolutely. Yeah. I got to say that um, Rosie Perez and her character of Tina She's obviously awesome in like White Men Can't Jump. She, I think, won an Academy Award for Fearless in the 90s. So she's not a talentless actress by any sense of the, uh, any stretch of the imagination. But I found her inclusion in this movie weird. I don't understand what point she serves to the narrative. They didn't really ever need to show her. I always felt like it was wasted time when she was on screen. <laughs> yeah, did you? Like it, they could they could have referred to Mookie's kid and he's kind of a deadbeat and all that kind of stuff without really ever wasting time showing it. Do you agree or do you think she like held more of a position than I'm giving her credit for. You know, I don't for for her first acting role and I believe this was her first movie. I don't think she did too bad. She she comes across sort of as that authentic Puerto Rican girl. So, you know, she's she's cute. She ar- she's arguing with her mom. She's sort of hot-tempered. But I think the purpose of seeing her is that seeing her protest, seeing her have the beefs that she has with the father of her child and stuff like that just drives the point home of Mookie's sort of his, his attitudes of unreliability, irresponsibility, you know, eschewing his 
his duties as a, as a father, eschewing his duties as a boyfriend. So seeing her protest, I think, in the movie just plays those angles up a little bit. You know, that for, for me, it would, you know, somebody arguing about it, having that sort of monkey on Mookie's back, you know, that someone pestering him to spend time and all that kind of stuff where he's running around town trying to get his money and sort of avoiding his responsibilities. I think it plays up, maybe plays up Mookie's character a little bit. So, Dave, let's go into a few other features of the movie that we haven't talked about yet. You did bring one of these things up before, which was kind of the color palette of oh, the movie. Yeah. David Crane wrote into us and said, Spike Lee's had an amazing career, but I still think this is his greatest movie. The performance is obviously, but his use of color as well. Do you agree? So I was reading a little bit about this, about the red, the inclusion of red and orange and how that kind of hypes up the heat. And I think the imagery in the movie with just like the sweat and the beads of sweat and the close ups and the saturated clothing and the cold showers and all of the rest. It's, it's just a really nicely done film from the perspective of making you feel like it's like you're there and like you can really feel the heat and the stench and of the city. And I think that's one of the things that this, the, sh- uh, the movie does really well, by the way, is just it represents the heat of New York City. New York City is horrifying in the heat. And anyone that's been there knows that heat just gets trapped there. It's just gross. And so you, you never want to be there in the summer. I, I certainly like avoid New York City like the plague in the summer. October is the best time to go. But what do you think about the color palette? And what do you think about the portrayal of color in the in the movie and how it works towards the story and the, and the setting? It's beautiful. This movie is so beautiful to look at. Every shot. Helene even commented on that last night or the whatever it was, Sunday night that we watched this, that every shot is so well crafted, is so so well thought out and very artfully done and you know shout out to the cinematographer Ernest Dickerson I know Spike himself really credits Ernest for a lot of the visual components of this film and how successfully they pulled it off I mean just the depiction of heat alone in this film using color and light and moisture and atmosphere and acting in order to really sort of portray this vivid palpable uncomfortable portrayal of a hot day in the, in the big city it really feels like we're right there sweating with the people in those buildings and on the street and a lot of it's due to all those visual you know those visual um components that that help us get there i mean spike said that he wanted his audience to sweat even while they're sitting in the air-conditioned luxury of the you know the multiplex that he really wanted that to come across all the way from those very first sweat-soaked images of the mayor waking up in his bed as the sun rises outside his window. Just really, just really vivid, rich visuals and imagery, color, texture. I love the shots. I love the moving camera. I love the off-kiltered camera. You know, the off-kiltered camera where everything is standing at like a 22 or a 45-degree angle. And yeah, just really rich, really vivid color. That red wall behind Sweet Dick Willie and his and his guys, Coconut and ML. Just really, just so, so beautiful. It really helps create an oppressive and a stifling and even like sometimes claustrophobic atmosphere. It almost makes you hard to breathe. A lot of it puts you on edge with the close-up. And just like a hot day does, it all like wears away at your patience. It kind of chips away at your capacity to do even the smallest tasks, just like the heat. It erodes your capacity for tolerance, for tolerating even the most minor annoyances. 
where you know where we're most prone to snap and act out and lash out and rage. I think the movie sort of pops into that territory. It goes from very, I would say, very settling, very calming nature with the jazz music. Of course, Bill Lee, uh, Spike Lee's dad, did the score where it takes you, it really brings you into the neighborhood. It almost makes you want to be there with those people. And then it sort of subverts your ex- expectations, even aesthetically, and sort of pops into those really vibrant colors and makes you feel hot. And then also, it, it, you know, it cools you off. It pops into the cooler colors as the day wanes on. They they pop open the fire hydrant. They're playing in the fire hydrant. They're drenching their face in a sink full of ice water, or taking the cold shower where you see the kids getting the shaved ice or the ice cream man. So it really, it's it's such a really cool slice of life. And you know, I love all the visual consideration that this movie brought into that because I I really think it makes it makes it immersive and it makes it makes it really successful. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful movie. You know, it all takes place over one day, so they really do a nice job of portraying that heat, that sun, and then as it gets to the night, the, the color palette kind of changes and the tenor of the movie changes as well. So I think that that's all wrapped in there as well. Kendrick Lukenbach wrote in us and said, "Hey, Colin and Dagan." This movie had a big impact on Spike Lee's voice and sneaker culture with the you stepped on my white Air Jordan scene. <laughs> that scene still makes me laugh with his fresh Air Jordan 4s that retailed for $108 with tax. Spike has these little digs at how much people value their shoes and it has withstood through time and sneaker culture. Do you guys have any memories of sneaker culture impact, especially growing up on the East Coast? So I've never really been that into sneakers. Personally, I buy the same pair of sneakers over and over again, which I, I wear Adidas shell toes. I've done that since college. Before that, I would wear like etnies and stuff like that, DBS, whatever the case might be when I was more of a into skate culture. But wh- what do you think about his commentary on sneaker culture? And, and you're a little bit more into that. So, so talk to me a little bit about that evolution. Yeah, again, you know, it speaks to that authenticity of the movie and these young kids, not just in black neighborhoods, but in white neighborhoods too. Like that's really a big part of the culture. And I, th- I do think along with commenting on alcoholism and racism and ageism and gentrification and absentee parenting i think materialism there's a comment on materialism in there too i mean certainly mookie's hung up on all of that stuff got even a guy like bugging out who's supposedly you know this amateur political activist he's got the hair just so he's got the awesome gear he's got the jordans that he's cleaning with the toothbrush propped up on the fire hydrant so it's really a, a broad comment i think on materialism that's been at play for a long time in many ways I do remember the Jordan ones coming out. I think I was in sixth grade. And that was really, for me, at least for my earliest memories, the advent of the $100 sneakers. That was a brand new thing. That that was the kicking off of that for me. So that was a little before this, a few years, uh, four or five years before this. But then how that sort of sneaker culture blossomed from there. I got really hooked in to sneakers. My friend PJ got me really into it with Nike SBs, which are Nike's skateboarding line of sneakers, which are very traditionally very exclusive. They're supposed to only be sold at like top of the line boutiques and skate shops. So very limited run and many of them are very expensive and hard to get. I got into that for a little while right before, probably in the early to mid aughts, around the time I got married, but before we had kids, before Helene and I had kids. So we had a little extra, you know, that extra income that throwaway income. So I, I was into that for stuff for a little while. I was into the Nike SBs for a little while. So, and I knew a lot of guys that are into the various iterations. They're into Jordans. They're into SBs. They're into air force ones. That's a huge thing. Sneaker culture, fashion, the hype beats 
the hype beast culture, which is kind of crosses over in many ways, I think with nerddom and vinyl toys and collector, collector toys and art and everything like that. So for me, it's, it's kind of an interesting culture. I, I like observing it from the outside. It's a little too, it's anxiety inducing for me, you know, the exclusivity and chasing things down and the month, you know, certainly the monetary aspect you have to be you know, you really have to set aside your funds and dedicate yourself to something like that. But I appreciate it. I think it really smacks of, again, the genuine attitudes of this film. Not only is it cool to look back in retrospect at those earlier Nikes from the eight, late 80s, early 90s, and and all the fashion across the board, but it's really, it's kind of cool that that culture, that that sort of hype beast culture and fashion, and I, I really think of it that way as fashion. And I think of it too... I don't look down on it because it's always been something with kids of every, of every stripe and of every color of every neighborhood, you know, kids fashion is one of those things. It's one of those pop culture aspects. That's really interesting to me. It's always been something. If it wasn't before Nikes, it was Fila before Fila, it was something else. And it wasn't just in hip hop. It was, you know, it's, there's a costume for everything. I always say that, you know, there's a proper way to look like a goth kid. There's a proper way to look like a metalhead. There's a proper way to look like a gearhead. There's a proper way to look like a b-boy. There's a proper way to look like a jock. There's a proper way to look like um, what do you call it? Like um, like a well-dressed. What do you call it? like oh, a like well- a preppy? Like a preppy, like a preppy kid. You yeah. know, there's always there's always a costume. There's a costume for everything. There's a cost. There's always been a, you know a costume. It's a little more low key, but there's always been a costume for being a skateboarder and wanting to be identified as that thing. So I appreciate that. I dig that part of the film. All right. Let's uh, let's begin to wrap up by talking a little bit about Spike Lee himself. I thought you'd find this funny. Jacob DeLeo wrote in and said back around 2008 or 2009, Spike Lee was giving a speech at a historically black college or university in Louisiana where I live. My friends and I were in 12th grade at the time and were huge film fans. So naturally, we jumped at the chance to see Spike Lee and possibly get his autograph. Oh. Towards the end of his speech, he did a Q&A. I was too chicken to go ask a question myself, so I told my friend to ask why he calls his film Joints. Spike got so annoyed when my friend asked this question and the entire auditorium started laughing. I don't remember his exact answer, but he currently explained that it was similar to how people will refer to a pizza restaurant as a pizza joint. So now every time I watch a Spike Lee movie, I think about that one time my friend annoyed Spike Lee by asking him why he kills his film, calls his film Joints. <laughs> Also, I got my DVD of Do the Right Thing signed, which was pretty cool. This is why you don't meet or even try to talk to anyone you like. I just wanted to throw that out there. I've always give, I've been giving you that advice. Just avoid it at all, at all costs. It's such a you're you're taking such a risk doing it. I totally agree with Colin on that sentiment. You know, you're taking such a risk. Hey, but at least your friends, your and your friend's memory is memorable. Allow me to allow myself to introduce myself. But allow myself you, to introduce this, yeah. You know, at least Spike, was, at least his reaction was memorable and it wasn't, he didn't just gloss over it or act unenthused. At least you got, you got his goat a little bit. So that's okay. Space Dog wrote in and said, hey, Colin and Dagan, fight the power. Fight, fight the, power. the power. But seriously, what a tremendous film. I saw this film when I was too young to really understand the underlying racial narrative at play here. And just enjoyed it for the more technical side of it, but many years later, and it's just as poignant and important as ever. I could write essays about this film, but I will spare you and just say that I look forward to your thoughts and critiques in the film. But one question I have is, what is Dagan and your favorite Spike Lee joint? Uh, I would have to choose this one, but I don't think his remake of Old Boy gets enough love. Now, I got to say, because I was looking at his filmography, I have it actually still have it up here right now on my computer. I think I've only seen like six of these, maybe. 
and he has, I don't know, 20 plus movies under his belt. So I don't know that I'm the man to really ask about this, but I will say that Malcolm X and Summer of Sam both stick out to me other than this movie as films that I really, really love. It's a great Malcolm movie. Malcolm X from 1992 and Summer of Sam from 1999. I think I saw Summer of Sam with you, actually. But what is your favorite Mal- uh, or, uh, Malcolm X? What is your favorite Spike Lee film? I assume it's this one. He's got such an interesting film- filmography. Yeah, the- Do the Right Thing is my favorite. He's got 25 movies if you include The Five Bloods, which is com- coming out on Friday on June 12th. And then he's doing a, a film to be announced, I think, called Prince of Cats. So currently he's got 23, soon to be 24 films out. Yeah, Do the Right Thing is my favorite. I also love Jungle Fever. Malcolm X is awesome. I love Crooklyn. He Got Game is one of my favorite Spike Lee joints. Summer of Sam, as Colin said, is amazing. Inside Man, super good. And 25th Hour is maybe the most notoriously undersung movie ever. That... 25th Hour is such a good film, and I think a lot of that is because Ed Norton and Spike Lee were trying to work together for years leading up to this project, and I think it really comes out on the screen. That that passion, everybody's good in it. You got Philip Seymour Hoffman in that. You got Barry Pepper. You got, of course, as I mentioned, Ed Norton. Uh, such a such an amazing cast, such an amazing story, really, and a, and a story that really centers on a white guy, you know, for, for by and large. And also sort of a huge Spike Lee nod to 9-11, some um, 25th hour coming out in 2002. So a lot of reference to 9-11, September 11th, 2001 in that, in that film. It's, it's great. I can't recommend that movie enough. And just in talking to our previous listener and, and what I think about Spike Lee, again, you know, he's one of those, he's one of those guys, he's a little polarizing. He's not, I don't mean to diss Spike Lee when I say this, but he's not the most articulate person, especially as he ages. I think when he comes to to talking about his films, I don't think he's always that great at expressing himself in an interview and stuff like that. But he's one of those guys where his genius really comes across in the film, in, in his work. And I think you have those rare anomalies, right? You have like a Martin Scorsese or you have a Steven Spielberg. They're really, they were so, they're such brilliant filmmakers, but they're also, they have a skill, a rare ability to be super articulate and t- and be able to talk about not only their films, but film in general and art and craft and all that stuff. And I think we're spoiled by guys like that, you know, where they're able to talk it and walk it. So Spike is not one of those guys. I think his genius, maybe he's a little awkward he, I think he goes out of his way sometimes, maybe like a Quentin Tarantino, who I also love, by the way, where maybe he tries to be a little too controversial controversial, or be a little too polarizing. Maybe he doesn't think about what he says. He just kind of goes off the cuff, and maybe that's really what that is. But I always liked him. I mean, you talk about important voices in film. You have so many great African-American directors now. I mean, you have a, a long list of them. You could You could just name them from the late, great John Singleton and Steve McQueen and Barry Jenkins and the, all the awesome stuff that Jordan Peele's doing and Ryan Coogler, all of his promise, Julie Dash and Gordon Parks and Ava du, du, uh, DuVernay and Mario, of course, Mario, a guy like Mario Van Peebles, right? Who's been around for a long time. We talk about New Jack City, but Spike has always been the one for me who's been that, that great voice and just stands among the throngs of great not only great African-American film directors, but those throngs of great directors. I would put him up there. hes I know how inspired he is by guys like uh, Scorsese, especially Scorsese's earlier work. 
and how Scorsese championed him, even from when Spike was still in school at NYU. And maybe that was an NYU boy thing, you know, a homey thing. But I, I, I love, I just love his voice. I love what he brings. I love that he, I love that he's polarizing. I love that he's divisive. I love that he makes people think. I love that he challenges us. Again, I think that's where really what he brings. But there's also an artfulness that I don't think is is talked about enough and a craft. And, you know, we could see that in this film. We could see all those. Um, I wrote down a few things, actually, that I wanted to talk about in terms of craft because we always talk about Spike in terms of message, but we never talk about, we rarely talk about him in terms of craft in filmmaking. And I think that's really sort of an important aspect to discuss too with Spike. We could see all those early signatures, those Spike Lee signatures coming to bear in this movie. You know, you have his cartoony use of cutaway, you know, where he uses the cutaway in such a cartoony way. It's such a great departure, freeing up the filmmaker to sort of experiment and take a break about stressing, about structure and continuity, and just take a break and do an aside. And he's a master at that. I mean, he really crafted that sort of style where he could just break away and do a little cutaway, a little vignette. Um, We'll see some other signatures come to bear in in a couple of his later films right after this. But it's cool to see those visual and filmmaking calling cards starting to take shape with this uh with this movie and then go onward and how he kind of built from and built out from that and created a style not only creating a style of what he would say and the things he would talk about but creating a film style a visual style which i think is really such a big part of modern filmmaking i think you could do you could easily do a whole class a film theory class on spike lee and a film analysis class on spike lee he's super important to me i just love his work i'm really looking forward to the 12th i'm really looking forward to friday Go watch the trailer for The Five Bloods if you guys haven't seen it yet. It looks really awesome. Vietnam, about a, a, a clan of, a, well, I guess a group, a platoon of black African-American Vietnam soldiers that go back in order to get a treasure that they buried or something. It looks amazing. It just looks so super good. It looks amazing. It's funny you brought up the other directors of color because Nat Patterson wrote in just asking us who our favorite blacker person of color director was he brought up Jordan Peele and Bong Joon uh, Joon Ho who wrote or did Parasite and Snowpiercer I gotta say I didn't see Snowpiercer Parasite won best picture I saw Parasite it did it's it's fine I don't understand I don't understand the hype around Parasite at all I do think that Jordan Peele is awesome I was really impressed with Get Out I thought that movie was awesome oh my god and uh Us is less less awesome but still really good so I'm excited to see what he does next. But I would I would give a shout out to Jordan Peele. But I also don't know enough about film to have a, an encyclopedic knowledge of who the uh, directors of color are. I don't really know much about movie directors at all. But I'll give a shout out to Jordan Peele for sure. It's so cool I to like see what he's bit. done, right? So, to see his comedy chops and his comedy upbringing and then crossing over into being like a serious, quote unquote, serious filmmaker. Yeah, he's he's one who I'm the most curious to see where he's going to go because he's a bit of a I got to say he's a bit of a genius. But you got, you know, Steve McQueen, you talk about 12 Years a Slave, Barry Jenkins with Moonlight, seeing where now where they're going to head after these seminal pictures that they did. But it's so cool that Spike Lee is still among all of this younger promise. He's still right there. And he's still keeping busy, you know, doing a movie every year, every other year for the last 20 or so years. That's pretty amazing. Uh, he's been, he had a bit of a dry spell, but... Not not really. He's been pretty consistent. He's been pretty prolific. And that's pretty striking, especially, you know, being a multimillionaire and not needing it 
still having the passion and that drive. We speak to that on the show a lot. I really, I always admire that. I always really dig seeing that. It's like they need to, to really be involved in their craft. It's a part of who they are. It's so neat. The final question we have here is from Anthony A., who says, hello, Moriarty brothers, as a young black teen in high school watching Spike Lee's do the right thing for the first time in 1990, I was upset, sad and angry by the time the film ends with the quotations from Dr. King and Malcolm. Even though I did not completely agree with Buggin' Out's constant demands of Sal to put blacks on his wall of fame or Mookie throwing the trash can through the window of Sal's pizzeria pizzeria after the death of Radio Raheem, I believe it fe- I felt sympathetic to each of their motivations and actions that helped spark the riot. However, as I've matured, gone to college, gotten married, had kids and lived some more as well as changed political views, I have to admit, I don't feel the same at all watching this movie in subsequent viewings. If you don't like the decor and staff in a particular restaurant, find another restaurant. Yes, Raheem's death was horrendous, but it doesn't justify Mookie's response. Don't destroy or damage the places where you live. It only causes more harm in the long run on a social, ideological and political front. Has there been any time where you have loved and or agreed with a movie's political message only to rewatch it years later to find out that you don't agree at all? Stay safe and sound. I thought Anthony's question was a an interesting one, considering he is a black man who saw the movie originally, kind of agreed with its message or kind of synced with its message. And then as he got older, it didn't resonate with him anymore. Does does anything come to mind with you as far as movies that you might have vibed with more politically that you don't vibe with politically anymore? You know, I don't, I don't really nothing comes to mind for me, Kyle. And that's because I think I just really now sometimes I fail like everybody else. I'm human, but I try to stay open minded about things like that because you have to understand that the creator in this case, we're talking about film. So the filmmaker or filmmakers, they have a certain agenda, not in a bad way, but a lot of the picture is what and especially with Spike Lee's work is what they're trying to say, the message they're trying to put across you have to understand it that. You have to understand that you with an open mind that you may not agree with what they're saying. You know, you may not agree with the message of that film. There's certainly a lot of films that vibe with me. Like I think about I was just tweeting last week about Mississippi Burning, which is such an amazing movie, again, dealing inherently with racism, in this case, in the Deep South, in Mississippi, in the United States. But and, you know, paints a a pro black and a pro unity and a you know an anti-racist message which i love but i love you know i it, that that movie just gets me going it gets me it, it it boils my passion it bubbles my passion up to the surface i think this movie does too in many ways the thing with this movie i can understand it being polarizing i really can because it's not spoon feeding you the answers it's just making you think it's making you consider perhaps it's making you be introspective about your own attitudes good or bad you know, quote, good, quote, bad, quote, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter. But I think I think it's really important, at least from my standpoint, to approach things, films like this in, in a way in such a way. Now, if I saw a movie, I have to say for for my inherent those things that I feel most strongly about my inherent biases, my inherent values, attitudes, if I saw a movie glorifying the KKK, for instance, I'm not really so sure I could be open-minded about that. You know what I mean? Like that's not something that really registers with me. That just goes completely off my radar of something that I'm willing to find acceptable. So, but I, so, but I, so I understand films being polarizing, but I, I think because I'm so open-minded about various things that now some movies I, I have to say, I find very upsetting. 
I mean, let me let me think. You know what movie I find very upsetting, Kyle? And you, I we may have watched this together with Dad. Is American History X? Oh yeah, that's a very that's upsetting a rough one. film. Now there is a character arc in there where the character does go from being a white supremacist to becoming someone who wakes up. Uh, you know, in my in my parlance, but. That movie, the first half of that movie is so upsetting for me. I mean, it's just like, because it just goes so far off of what makes sense. You know, really what makes sense to me. So that's really what I would advise, though, is try to, you know, try to um, go into things with an open mind. And I think that I think still to this day, that's what really kind of scares people about this movie is that it really I think it really was made to challenge you. I think that's very inherently who Spike Lee is. I don't think he's willing to put the bow at the end and tell you how to feel. I think he's asking you to think about how you feel. I think he wants you to walk away. And I think he wants this movie to stay with you. And I think he wants that conversation to keep going. And thank God he did make a movie like this. And thank God it can, you know, sort of um, kick up some conversation for us now today. Because I think we need it, man. I think we really do need it. Yeah, I can't think of anything like nothing comes to mind for me where I like radically change my point of view on a movie politically. But I will say that the way I look at certain background conflict in movies, I think, has changed over time when you get a little bit more of an education and more texture into Vietnam or Korea or the Middle East wars and stuff like that. You start you start to look at movies in in a different way, even if they're not necessarily designed to celebrate those conflicts, but are just telling stories over them i think that's the only thing that really comes to mind for me is that change that has occurred to me over time as i've become you know i used to be very hawkish in my foreign policy and everything when i was younger and that's something that really radically changed after iraq and it's part of the reason why i'm such a kind of peacenik now as it were (laughs) in a lot of different ways because it was just such a rad i was just so wrong you can't be wrong like that again um otherwise it becomes a pattern yeah makes sense. and so i think Yeah. So I think it just that's what comes to mind for me is just I don't know that I've ever like radically changed my political point of view on a movie or whatever, but I've definitely looked at movies differently over time based only on their subject matter. And it doesn't really change how I feel about the movies. It just changes maybe the more American centric or American excusing sort of perspective that I once brought to those films. So. All right, Dave, let's is there anything that we didn't talk about that you wanted to say before we wrap it up? Because I've gone through all my notes. You know, I had one question for you. And then one thing I wanted to share with you, Kyle, that I that I thought you would enjoy. The one thing I want to say, though, and, you know, I, I don't you know, this show is about having fun. Now, we're talking about a film that we wanted to talk about topically in accordance with what's going on in the world right now, which, we, as we know, is very important, which really interesting me to me about it. What's fun, kind of fun is that Colin texted me about it and said, I want to put this in before we do Mass Effect. So let's just slide in this topic. I think it's important. Let's talk about this movie. I knew he knew that I would dig it because it was one of my favorite films. But I had the same idea and just for some reason didn't say it to him. So that was kind of a neat treat. I was like, dude, I was thinking the same thing. So you like totally read my mind. I'm so glad that he did. But there's this one thing I want to say really about racism. And I think really important things to remember is that there's two things, Kyle, that I'll say we have to remember in this world again. And again, forgive me for getting on my soapbox. It's not from a judgy standpoint. It's just something that I think I learned that 
I think is important to share, maybe especially with our younger viewers that have a little less experience in the world, you know, just due to age, is that racism causes racism, okay? Now, let me tell you, I talked about on the show before, I've had bad experiences, okay, sometimes, like we all have. I've had experiences, for instance, with with racist black cops, okay, where, you know, they treated me like shit, they called me whitey, they told me to go back to the suburbs, they threw me in the back of the car. This was for skateboarding. You know, the, they cuffed me too tight. I had a plate, a metal plate in my wrist. They, you know, they were tossing me around. I had a bruise on my shoulder, right? I didn't come away from that experience judging cops, black cops or black people, okay? I have the fortune, I'm fortunate enough to have the character and have those values instilled in me from the people that I grew up with where that didn't affect me negatively, okay? Racism exists in all stripes of life. I'm lucky to come away from that experience with my values and my philosophies intact. Somebody who didn't have that privilege, that same privilege that I had, might have walked away from that experience and become a racist. You understand how it starts? It's taught. It's learned. What our experiences, if it's not learned from a kid, it's learned later. Don't paint everybody with the same brush. You know, there's bad cops out there, but there's really good cops too. You know, I knew, I grew up with one of the best cops in New York, okay, my friend PJ's father. He'd be the first one. He was a detective in Queens who later became, got promoted to inspector. He was one of the best men. He is one of the best men I've ever known. And he'd be the first one to tell you that it's the bad cops that fuck it up for the good cops because they're entrenched. The good cops, the cops are entrenched in these neighborhoods. These people, these communities are really important to them, not only for their safety, but in the success of what they do. They need the people in their community, in these communities for dialogue, to help them. They have to establish trust. The bad cops fuck it up for the good cops. They don't want this, okay? So that's one thing that everybody has to realize, especially because now that's the big talk, policing and de-policing and all that kind of stuff. Just remember that. There's good cops out there too. The shitty cops have to go, okay? We have to find some kind of magical way of vetting these people, these men and women, and make sure they're not racist before they're hired on the job. I don't know what magic alchemy we need what Gryffindor shit we need to find that out, right? I, don't, I have no idea, but that's really what we need. That's really what we need is to find out, to really vet who these people are inherently, and that's hard. So that's the, that's the work we have to do. That's the work cut out for us. But what I'm saying is don't paint everybody with the same brush. And the other thing is it's teaching, man. It really is. Words are important. Words are really important. They have meaning. That's a big part of teaching. But what's really important, what's vital, is leading by example and practicing what you preach. You know, I think about the way I try to teach my kids, and that's really what you have to do or what you what I certainly strive for. And sometimes, you know, I have my good days and my bad days, but that's what you have to do. You have to lead by example, practice what you preach, and not just your own kids, but just all the young and really impressionable people, especially in your sphere nieces, nephews, neighbors, grandkids, friends, you know, your friends' kids, especially your own children. You have to really lead by example and show them what's right. That's what breaks down racism generation after generation. It gets diluted. That's how it gets diluted. That's how we get rid of this thing is by doing that. So that's really what, you know, thank you for allowing me to be on my soapbox. It's really important for me to say, especially in conjunction with talking about 
this movie and i i think i'm i'm feeling very inspired by this movie right now so thank you for letting me express that now Kyle i wanted to ask you two things first of all let me let me yep. close let me close with that right now i put i put a list together for you that i think you might find enjoyable i hope our listeners dig and that's a 1989 pop culture year in review what really happened in real life for a little place and time contextually and for a little pop culture context, of course, we're a retro podcast. We like to talk about these retro things. 1989, such a nostalgic year. year. Oh, such a good year, dude. Such a good year. Closing out the 80s, heading into the 90s. Here's some stuff I came up with. Politically, pop culture, uh, economy, all this kind of stuff. So we have the fall of the Berlin Wall. Very important to remember. Mm. The Tiananmen Square protests in Beijing and China. Of course, we know yeah. those emblematic images. Now here's a not fun, much has changed there. Not much. Yeah, I know that's that's another striking thing in, in kind of digging through these and writing things down is like that one really smacked me in the face. It was like, wow, that's another thing that hasn't really felt like there's been proper progression. But um, here's a fun one that you guys will appreciate: the NES, the Nintendo Entertainment System, still ruling in living rooms everywhere. Now Nintendo releases the Game Boy in North America, I believe, in late July that year. Uh, Toyota launched its Lexus luxury brand in 1989. Serial killer Ted Bundy is executed. I did not know that before I dug through these facts. In 1989, the first episodes of The Simpsons air, I believe that was December of 89. How crazy is that, right? Talk about something yeah, positive that, has, that hasn't changed. Holy shit. What kind of, speaking yeah, of magic, crazy. by the way, movies. Okay, Kyle, Batman. Lethal Weapon 2, Ghostbusters 2, The Little Mermaid, When Harry Met Sally, Back to the Future 2, Twins, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. So, I mean, some some seminal movies there. Some of them we've already talked about. Others will we will talk about on the show. NASA launched the Galileo spacecraft call, which was intended as a mission to probe Jupiter's atmosphere, as I learned. But it did a lot of constructive things along the way, besides taking some beautiful pictures of Jupiter that I was looking at as I researched J Jesus Christ. That must have been so exciting for oh, not, definitely. not only NASA and the people involved and the astronomers and everything, but just for the public like to see. Because I, you know, I was just an irresponsible 15, 16 year old at this point. I wasn't paying attention to any of that cool stuff. So just to see that. You know, that must have been so, so amazing to see that those pictures in time and the various publications and everything. Now, here's something I remember. The Exxon Valdez oil spill in Alaska, mm. that tragedy. Hundreds Definitely. and hundreds of thousands of barrels of oil spilt uh, into that beautiful, that beautiful nature. I mean, that's that's insane. You know, that's just crazy. That that's a really vivid memory for me. Kyle, popular musicians, REM, New Kids on the Block, Depeche Mode, Paula Abdul, Madonna. Still sticking around, and Phil Collins still sticking around, and Kyle, one that'll be speak to near and dear to your heart, the Soviet Union pulling out of Afghanistan, which I think you'll know better than this than me on this call. I think that started in '88, but maybe the final throws were in '89, if I'm not mistaken. Well, yeah, the Soviet Union was falling around this time, so that it was over. Um, Russians in Afghanistan. <laughs> Yeah, so that that was a. Uh, that's why you need to know your history because we should have known better than going into Afghanistan after what the, they did to the 
the Russians. I mean, talk about but, crazy history there, right? I mean, that's insane. That's crazy. Yeah, a lot of good stuff. So is that your new closing segment that you wanted? No, or is that no, just I just thought did? that would okay. be a fun tie in a little fun pop culture knockback ish tie in that we could put in with the thing. The one thing I wanted to close with you about, we talked a lot mm. about Spike Lee at length. We talked a lot about the character, our hero, <laughs> our protagonist, likable or unlikable, you choose, of Mookie. But now I can understand why Spike Lee stars in a lot of his movies. Other directors do this to a lesser degree, Quentin Tarantino, but Spike Lee plays the main character in this film. And I understand it from a certain point of view of a creator, although I'm not a filmmaker proper. I can understand that giving you an even larger modicum of control of the picture. And at least, you know, you're handling one of the main characters of the film yourself. So that gives you, you know, not only does that free you up for other duties, maybe, but it also it, it, it lets you paint the picture the way you want. You don't have to answer to anybody. You're the main character. Boop, boop, boop. You're answering only to yourself. I get it. But how effective do you think, Kyle, is Spike Lee as an actor? You may consider this role or you may think about him in other, you know, some of his other films. How do you think he is? Does does he work for you as an actor? Is he a um, competent actor? Is he is he a great actor? How does you know, how does he work for you in the role, especially of Mookie, I guess? Yeah, I I think he's great. I mean, I. I you don't have to feel positively about a character to, to appreciate the performance and i think that actually the his performance is what really stands out in this movie amongst other things i think he does a really nice job he might not be the most talented actor some people might question the wisdom of writing yourself in your own movies any more than perhaps in a glancing cameo like hitchcock which i know was an inspiration for him sure. used to do and m night yeah. does and others but I don't know that I would ever write myself in. I would. I've, I've said that if I were like a movie director or writer, I would write myself into every movie in a cameo that I did or a TV show because I, I would want I have enough of an ego to want to do that for sure. But I wouldn't make myself like a person that was around for very long. I always like the way M. Night did it. Right. Like if you think about signs, like he's the guy that drove the car that killed Mel Gibson's wife. It's kind of cool. Yeah. You know, that's, that's like kind that of a cool great. cameo. Oh, that's a great cameo. Yeah, that's a great one. That's a great pull. So yeah. that's like that's the kind of stuff I like where I'm like, yeah, that's or like in Villa in the village. He's like the security guard or whatever. Like it's I think that that's neat. I'm like, yeah, this is but you don't need to like make yourself the center of the movie or whatever. But he, and he does that in this film. He doesn't I don't know that he he acts in other films, but I don't know that he ever has like as as central a role in other movies. Like, I think he's in Crooklyn, he's in Malcolm X and all these other things, but I don't think he has like this central of a role. Right. That's true. But I think he does a really nice job and he's also really young and inexperienced here. So I think he might have done. He did school days before this. But yeah, so I, I don't I have no problem with Spike Lee as an actor in this. Yeah, he's good. Direct, directed, writ, wrote, produced and acted in it. And yet, you know, those little cameo roles when the director kind of goes in there and pops in for a scene. That is a nice nod to Hitchcock. And again, this movie was inspired. I almost forgot to say was inspired by an Alfred Hitchcock Presents episode, that TV anthology series called Shopping for Death, which I believe I didn't get to watch it, but I believe it centers around the idea that people are their most violent at 92 degrees Fahrenheit when the weather is 92 degrees outside. And there's a direct nod to that because we see that the, the thermometer read 92 degrees in this film. So that's a direct nod to Hitchcock 
And who, I mean, what filmmaker isn't inspired by Hitchcock? But yeah, that's very well said about Spike Lee. I think he works really well in, in the film as an actor. You know, he's, he's, Mookie is an interesting character because he's a young black man. You know, we see him sort of in the throes of being irresponsible and maybe being at that time of his life where he didn't go to college and, you know, his sister Jade wants to inspire him to extend himself and um, increase his station in life and move on. You know, that's another thing. His sister Jade, who play, you know, who's played by Joy Lee, who's Spike Lee's real life sister. I, I forgot to mention this, Kyle. She's another character in the film who we don't see corrupted by prejudices. She's another one like Avito or the mayor where she doesn't go in for the racism. We never see her cross over to the other side to that hatred, that bigotry. She never she never demonstrates that. So she's another character to talk about. Also, really a serviceable actress. I think she has she's really charming in the movie. I like her a lot and she's in a she's in a few Spike Lee joints, but I like her in this very much. Yeah, I'm satisfied, Kyle, if you are. Um I'm I'm ready to move on to the closing segment if yeah. you're ready to wrap it up. Let's close. All right. Yeah, let's close it out. Yeah, very well done. All right. Let's see. All right, Kyle. So we're going to do our closing segment that we've been doing, saying anything. I'm going to handle it a little differently today. I'm going to read you the quotes one by one, and I'll tell you who said them in a sort of laundry list at the end. I won't tell you who said each one in order. I'll wait to the end for that. And again, if you guys are new to this segment, Collins, I'm just going to read a quote from a famous person. Collins just going to say whether he subscribes to this quote or just generally what he thinks of it or what it means to him. Simple. Easy peasy. All right. You ready, Lemon Squeezy? Let's do this. Let's do it. Number one, never be limited by other people's limited imaginations. I love this one. What do you think of this one? Yeah, this is a good one. Definitely. Speaks oh, to definitely. You. You, can't, you, can't, you can't speak to the... You can't go to the lowest common denominator, the weakest link in the chain. And those are the people that hold everyone back. So that, yeah, that resonates with me. A lot. That's good. That's that's cool. I'm glad it does. You know, and you you know, hey, you you CLS, you're doing your thing, baby. You're not beholden to anybody. So you are the model of this. If I feel so, sort of bummed out in work sometimes, you're the go you're the go to guy. You're the inspiration, my friend. Why won't you have a model for me, Mrs. Kensington? <laughs> Mrs. Kensington, I bet you. Sure you know how Mr. Mr. Kensington feels about. <laughs> We just broke back into our Austin Powers episode. I you guys are, are not experiencing technical difficulties. We actually did go back to our we flashback. By the way, just because we always talk, also talk about the Brady Bunch movie and someone had talked about carjacking on Twitter a few days ago. So I tweeted at him, uh, this is a card, but my name's not Jack, it's Greg, and this is my sister, Marsha. And I don't think anyone understood what the reference was. Which was oh, awesome. dude, that like, is wow. one of the best lines. We got to just do that movie one day. Much <laughs> yeah. to everybody's consternation. Like, what the hell is this, <laughs> the hell is this topic? It's not even the series. It's the movie. Oh, they're so good. It's anyway, so good. it's so great. All right. Number two. The soul that is within. Oh, wait. OK, sorry about that. The soul that is within me. No man can degrade. Uh. It's a little too ethereal for me, I think. Yeah. But I, I understand it. You know, that's fine. Yeah. I, I don't like I don't like when people diminish reality in some way. Like it does matter what people say about you. It does matter what perception is. Perception is reality. Like those things are important to control and have some sort of semblance of agency over, I think, too. 
we all have our real selves inside of us and we, we should all cherish that. But I don't like like reducing it all to just making it seem like that's all that matters because that's not true. Yeah, that's how I feel. Yeah, there's an artificiality to that. I, I agree with you on that call. It, make, it makes me think it does because, yeah, I mean, it almost transcends being a human like it would require us being more than human to just not be affected by negativity directed at us right it would take that's like an inhuman ability we would have to be so much more than human in order to truly you know be above that i think at, at least that speaks to my character i'm not sure any human's character is is above that but yeah i i, I hear what you're saying in that regard all right my friend number three in recognizing the humanity of our fellow beings we pay ourselves the highest tribute yeah, I mean, the message is good. I don't know that that's the highest tribute we can pay to ourselves. I just think that that's the way we should conduct ourselves is seeing good in other people and projecting that. I think it's just the right thing to do. Yeah, it's a given almost, right? It should, or should it should be a given. It's not always a given, but it should be a given. I, I hear that. I hear that, my friend. All right, number four, speaking of given, freedom is never given. It is won. What do you think of that one? Yeah, this is... This is true. I, I think freedom is a natural law, but it is overcome by others. And there you have and then you have to kind of extract it from whatever situation you find yourselves in and then maintain that. So you don't always have to fight for it, but you have to at some point in posterity have fought for it in order to have it. So, yeah, I mean, that makes sense to me. That's well said. I couldn't say it yeah. better myself, my friend. All right. Approaching the midway point. Halfway, number five, the need for change bulldozed a road down the center of my mind. What do you think of that one? Does that mean that he's, he or she is split on if they need to change or not? Mm. The pros and cons of change? I don't, I, I, I don't know if that I quite understand. You know what? I understand, I understand what you're saying. I'm analyzing it. I think what it's saying for me, the need for change bulldozed a road down the center of my mind was that the need for change sort of overcame everything and forcibly bulldozed a road down the center of my mind like that's her main that's his or her main focus that's mm. you know what i mean like that's the it yeah, forcibly yeah. entered that's and and sort of like made them realize that makes sense yeah i that don't know that i i yeah i mean i mean i mean yeah of course that 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 would be true i suppose yeah I understand. All right. Number six. I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word. Yeah, I believe in that. That makes sense to me. Yeah, me too. Me too. It's a struggle sometimes. Sometimes, Some days, oh, certainly. on those bad days, you definitely wonder. But ultimately, yeah, for sure. It's a perpetual struggle. Yeah. All right, my friend. Number seven, Kyle. If they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. I never heard this one. I like this one, but what do you think? What What do you think of it? Yeah, no, it's good. It's a nice saying. I don't know that it's per always pertinent to the situation at hand, but yeah, sometimes you have to wedge your way in. So, yeah, yeah, it makes sense to me. Yeah, I don't begrudge anyone that. Make your own opportunities. You know, Definitely. try to yeah get your foot. In the I've door made plenty of my own opportunities. Like that, you have to do that. You have to be a doer. Well, you don't have to be, but you're going to be stuck if you're not. Yeah, absolutely. And the only downside to that, to, to asserting yourself, I guess, is, which is what this is saying, is that you're going to be 
you're going to be um, rejected, you know, and then you just come back again. You just bounce back again. So it's it, that's what it's all about. I have to, you know, that's one that that speaks to me. I could be a little better at that, you know, just putting myself out there and, you know, not worrying about the failure or the rejection. I guess that's a typical one for a lot of people. But yeah, I, I think I think so for sure. All right. Here's a short one called number eight. Character is power. Character is power. What do you think of that? Yeah, I agree with this. Okay. For sure. Having character is is everything. You know? I think so. I, th- I Absolutely. Yeah, that speaks to you, who you are as a person. I think that speaks to the way we were raised, too. I think that was really an important thing. Like, if I think about what mom and dad and, and others of the adults that were in our sphere, I think what they tried to instill, I think that was a big part of that, for sure. Absolutely. Especially dad. Yeah, honor. I, I believe deeply in honor and loyalty and those kinds of things. Like that, Those are character-driven traits in my mind. Yeah, it's who you are. You know, it's who you are as a person. So that, yeah, I get that. All right, rounding it out here. We're getting close to the end. Number nine, I am lucky that whatever fear I have inside me, my desire to win is always stronger. Yeah, that resonates with me in a major way. I love winning. And that's what drove, that's what drives me professionally. I like doing the content too, but I like to win. I like to prove people wrong. I like to frustrate people that don't like me. <laughs> you know, living best is the best revenge. You know, living well is the best revenge. And I can't help but look at my success with Collins Last Stand and all of that kind of stuff as not only a great thing for me and not only a great thing for you and others that are associated with us and not a great and not only a great thing for our fans who enjoy the content, but a massive middle finger to everyone that tries to try to and still tries to tear me down. Because um, it's not lost on me that I'm doing better than virtually all of them. So it's completely understandable that 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 does drive me. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and lie. I mean, that is definitely a driving factor in my life is winning. I love to win. And I always love to win. I was very competitive with sports, very competitive in chess, very competitive in whatever it was I was doing. And I'm very competitive in business. So, yeah, nothing wrong with that. Hey, look at my idol and yours. And maybe a lot of people out there, Derek Jeter. He was all about winning. And look how he conducted himself, yeah. like a gentleman. But still, he was all about that W, baby. He was all about checking yeah. off that win call. <laughs> Let's face it. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with winning. And uh, there's nothing wrong with losing as long as you left it all out into the field. And I, that's my whole thing. And I've told many, many a person that in the past is like, I can accept losing as long as I know there was nothing I could do to have won. Absolutely and correct. Yeah, that's, that's, that's it. That's the long and the short of it. I did yeah. such a good job with you. <laughs> all right my friend are you ready for number 10 yeah all right let's do this last one i had no idea that history was being made i was just tired of giving up yeah i don't know that i really like that one too much personally yeah that's a weird it's a little too it's a little too weird it's very specific when i tell you who said it you'll it'll make more sense it's very that one's actually tricky because it's very specific to a specific thing as soon as i tell you who it is, you'll know what's it, what it's in regards to. Okay, so number one, Kyle, never never be limited by other people's limited imaginations. Dr. May or Mai, I'm not sure, Jemison said that. She was the first African-American female astronaut, which I did not know oh. of this person. So that was a really interesting one for me. Cool. Okay. Timely. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Number two, the soul that is within me, no man can degrade 
Frederick Douglass, noted abolitionist, uh, orator, writer, statesman, yep. said that. Okay. All and right. Number three, in recognizing the humanity of our fellow beings, we pay ourselves the highest tribute. Thurgood Marshall said that. Thurgood Marshall. First, I didn't, I didn't realize this. First African-American U.S. Supreme Court member, Thurgood Marshall. All right, Con number four, freedom is never given. It is one. A. Philip Randolph said that. He was a famous civil rights activist, noted labor unionist. I don't know anything about him, but um, I thought that was an interesting quote. Yeah, I don't think I know anything about him either. That, but that's kind of, you know, if you guys might be inspired, just just wiki these people, Google them and see. You know, you learn a little bit. You That's what this is all about, you know, my friend. They, the, number five, call halfway. The need for change bulldozed a road down the center of my mind. Poet Maya Angelou. And that one is a little mm. poetic. That one might even yeah. be a passage from one of her pieces. All right, Kyle. Number six, I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word. MLK himself, Dr. Martin Luther King yeah. Jr. said that. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Number seven, if they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. Shirley Chisholm said that, politician, educator, Mm. author. If I'm not mistaken, I think she just passed in the mid-aughts, like maybe 2005. She's somebody who I wanted to go down a rabbit hole and just explore some of her writings. I didn't have a chance to, but I have the big check mark next to her. I'm going to explore Shirley Chisholm a little bit because in in a sort of little rundown of her quotes, I find her to be extremely interesting. Poignant character. Number eight, Kyle, character is power. Booker T. Washington, educator, Ah. famous author, auditor, orator. Number nine, here's an interesting one. I am lucky that whatever fear I have inside me, my desire to win is always stronger. Serena Williams, famous athlete. Oh, she loves to win. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. definitely. She's all about that for sure. A vicious opponent too, man. I, I love to watch her play. I don't know anything about that sport and I just I could watch that's the one thing tennis that's the one sport that really intrigues me it's very difficult it takes an extremely high level of athleticism and stamina I'm just so intrigued by tennis I really I know I tell you this sometimes Kyle I don't know if I talk to our listeners about it our daughter took tennis lessons for four years and just gave it up when she got in junior high school I'm like no this is the time to do it now like this is you know she just lost complete interest heartbreaking Heartbreaking, my friend. Yeah, tennis is a great sport. It's I've always been. It is incredibly hard. I've always been amazed. Like when I step the few times I've stepped onto the court to play, like how big it is. Yeah. You know, it's like how much room you have to cover. It's like, holy shit. It's crazy. It looks way easier until you're on the court. Absolutely. You got to be spry, my friend. And spry. Oh, definitely. Spry. I am not. All right. Call last one. I had no idea that history was being made. I was just tired of giving up. Civil rights activist. Rosa Parks. Oh. So that makes very nice. sense. How dare I naysay Rosa Parks? <laughs> I would never intentionally do so. But you did. But very you interesting. But you didn't. Well, all black quotes. I like that. Very cool. There you go. Shall we uh, ruin the moment now by ending yes. with a dad joke? <laughs> Absolutely. And I won't degrade it or create any kind of negative resonance by doing a, a a uh, black dad joke. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> Save that for another time. <laughs> Kyle, okay. It's the last one on my list, actually. I have to go back to the data banks and, and make a whole new list. So this is kind of an epic moment here on this piece of paper, which has been with me for probably 14 episodes. All right, Kyle. Last one on this list. Kyle, 
It's really hard to say what my wife does for a living. She sells seashells by the seashells. <laughs> that's a good one. I like that uh, one. That's a funny Very one. well done. Very well done. All right, Dave. That's all we have for Do the Right Thing. It's available to rent on Amazon and PlayStation Network. If you are interested in checking it out, I'm sure you can also get DVDs and Blu-rays. If you are into physical media, definitely check it out. A movie worth watching and watching again if you've seen it but haven't seen it recently. And we appreciate your love, your kindness, and your support. Remember to go to patreon.com slash Stand to get early ad-free access to the show. The ability to submit questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas to the show. Submit topics to be considered by the audience for us to cover here. And vote on, and vote on others as well. Mass Effect will be the next episode, which is a fan-chosen topic. Woo! And uh, so we will have much to discuss there very soon. But in the meantime, I hope you enjoyed this episode and we will see you next time. Goodbye. Knockback is a product of and a registered trademark of Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded in Richmond, Virginia and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, USA. The show is produced by me, Colin Moriarty, and was conceived of by myself and Dagan Moriarty, who is also my co-host. You can find me on Twitter at No Taxation and on Instagram at CLS Moriarty. Dagan is on Twitter at Dagan1973 and on Instagram at Dagan Likes to Draw. Knockback is edited by Dustin Furman. As you know, all things Collins Last Stand, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon, and we are eternally grateful for your kindness, generosity, and fandom. A.G. Rowe, Adam Nixch, Ahmad Tamar, Alex Cabrera, Alex Gates, Alan Tremblay, an unofficial controller podcast, Andrew Parker, Anton Kay, Auntie Kinnanen, Avery Lewandowski, Azan, Barrett Boswell, Bo Clant, Ben, Betty Ann Moriarty, Bjorn Campbell, Blake Israel, Bloody Fang, Boots, Brad Cooley, Brian Chan, Casual Misfits Gaming, Chad Lewis, Chris Buston, Chris Galvin, Chris Moore, Cody Bradbury, Colin Davenport, Colin Love, Connor Gashian, Corey Wyatt, Damon Weathers, Daniel Diamore, Daniel Margaka, Darren Gardner, Daryl E. Naiman, David Chestnut, David John Finney, Wright, Don Lee, Donnie Nolan, Dylan Burns, Enrique Perez, Eric Finkenbeiner, Eric Harden, Galgia, Gamer Filmaholic, George Anthony Nunez, Gerald Pennington, Gio Corsi, Greg Julius, Gregory Slovinsky, Homeworld Hub, Hugo's Desk, Infinite, Isaac Wassman, Jason Pettit, Jackson Lastiqua, Jay Getter, Jeff Pollard, Jeremy Key, Jeremy Shook, Jerome Ferreira, Jesse Owen, Joe McPartland, Joe Finelli, John, John Schultz, John Cordero, Jonathan Reich, Jonathan H., Jorge Palomino, Josh Bushing, Josh Gravelick, Josh Yeager, Josh M., Josh McKinney, Joshua Smallwood, Justin Wagaman, Carl Tolman, Keith A. Lewis, Kevin Komaki, Kevin R. Lord, Knight Draft, Kyle Hagel, Lawrence F. Prokop, Lennon Brixey, Lewin Ray Loper, Mad Mock Media, Miranda Grubba, Mark Boggio, Marius Garson Peterson, Martin Beck, Mason Kodalak, Matt Martin, Matthew Purdue, McDog18, Megadet, Michael Gates, Michael Vecchio, Miguel A. Brewer, Mike Wayant, Morgan Ashley, Mubarak, Nathan R., Of Fortuna, Organic Produce, Patrick Harper, Patrick Kelly, Patrick Leslie, Paul Joyce, Peter Reynolds, Petro Rose, Phil Crone, Raul Melendez, Ray Lasia, Richard Hebert III, Richter 86, Robbie Hensley, Rodney Coleman, Ross Maranka, Ryan Murdoch, Ryan R. Kittredge, Ryan Reeves, Ryan T. Mandel, Saul Balcazar, Scott Lovelace, Sean Chandler, Sean Mason, Shane Rayum, Simon Conception Jr., SLD FMA, Spencer Brand, Stephen Nieder, Taylor Barkley, TB Lightning, Throw 7, Toby Shootman, Todd Paxton, Tony Zuniga, Toothless Gibbon, Travis Plymel, Tyler Bello, Tyler Harris, Vexius, William O'Carroll, and Zach Parsley.